Hey, so this is our eighth episode. Can you believe it? Eight episodes. I know. Wow. Um, so this time we talked with Mike Seba. And you were saying he's a bit of a legend. <laughs> yeah, it seems so. Uh, he's a sitar player, a musician, a comedian, a published author, a tie-dye artist, and a meme lord. That's quite a list. And we talked with him about his studies and travels in India, his book Cat in the Rye, his writing process, sitar and ragas, AI, art, and consciousness. That was an that was a fun talk. It was a pretty freewheeling, full-spectrum conversation, I have to say. Yeah. And so, what were you going to say about... Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You, here we are at our eighth podcast. I think this is the one that's going to break us through. I hope so. Well, it depends on the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are they listening? Can they hear us? Hey, 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 can you hear me? Yeah. And if, by the way, if you like... If you are listening... And you like what you hear... Just give us a like on whatever you're listening to. And share and like and subscribe. And also, um, hey, if you can support us, we do have... Give us your money! Options. Give us some dough! <laughs> we do have ways that you can support us. Um, yeah, we've got a support page. Which is always cool. Um, we go to our a, website. Tell them about the website. Yeah. It's nervousending.com. And there's a support link on there. You just click on that, and there's all kinds of different ways you can support us. There's uh, we have a couple. We have stickers and books for sale. We have um, we have a Patreon. We have um, we got a supplement connection. Affiliate links where you can like buy supplements, and you get a discount, and we get a little bit of a cut. Anyway, there's ways to support us, or you could just listen to the podcast and. I think my favorite of all of them yeah. is probably the um, the water filter because oh, yeah. that has been life changing for me personally. Yeah, if you're if you're drinking tap water, I highly recommend highly recommend not drinking tap water. What else we got? Uh, you said you like those um, stop smoking yeah, those devices. Looked, those look cool. Um, they're like what like these herbal. They have aromatherapy cores inside of these fashionable sticks that. You can bring up to your mouth as if you're smoking, but instead of getting toxic smoke into your mouth, you get healing vapors from aroma. I know it's like I almost want to try one, just even 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 though I just don't to look smoke. Cool. Yeah, even if you don't smoke, maybe it'd be you could you could pretend you're smoking, but you're actually smoking something healthy. But hey, hey, so yeah, it'd be awesome to oh, what support else? us. No, we got we, we got do news. Have news. We have this news. This just in. We just released our first single for our upcoming album. We're drip releasing song by song our upcoming album. And this and our first single is now available on Spotify and Apple and all, all the different listening platforms out there. You can find I Radio. it. Yeah, iHeart. So if you, what, you Google... I don't know. You go to our website. Just it's wherever on, you it's, listen to music. Yeah, or wherever you listen like to music. On that thing, um, just look for Nervous Ending. Nervous Ending. ending. Uh, Love Will Carry Us is this, the title. And my song's coming out, uh, I don't know, Blow next the week, Ocean I think. Ocean is going to be released, yeah. Um, and then uh, what else? Oh, we got uh, we got the Ridgestock Music Festival. We're playing, we're playing at Ridgestock. If you're in the area, you That's should cool. come check it out. 
And if you're not in the area, yeah, come on down. Sure. Come to the area. It's uh, up here in Nevada the North City. North Columbia Schoolhouse, August 27th. Woohoo. Afrolicious oh, will yeah. be there. They sound good. I'm so Oboe Martin. Oh, yeah. Oboe School. Really? He's going to be there? Yeah, he's on before nice. us. Nice. Cool. And I think Mike Siva is yeah, he Siva, be there. Actually, too? yes. The, the star of this podcast yeah, so. is going to be performing. So that's cool. Um, anything else before we get started with the podcast? I don't think so. I think we're we're set to roll. Yeah, basically, give us your money. <laughs> love us. Yay. Thank you for listening. We love you. You know, I do a lot of memes. I'm also a meme lord, right? So, yeah, if you, if you follow, uh, I made another meme for you to look at. That's all my original content on there. Okay, I just played for the richest guy in the world, and he gave me props, so now I'm fearless. There you go. Tie yourself to the ceiling. Say a tried and true method. Yeah, they say they have a, a slogan, we don't make sense, but we love pizza. But they didn't con me. Do you know how to read? Previous karma is why they were born into a lower caste. So you, you're just doing their destiny to treat them like shit. So then I was like, now doubly, you know, they would literally treat me like a fucking god. The all other, these like totally like super like shanty musicians, you know, and they're just sitting around like smoking weed and playing cards and like hanging out. Like, like not your grandpa's King Cobra, you know? It's like, you think you're vegetarian, but you're not vegetarian. But that's not art. That's just commercial bullshit, you know? Like, how, how long is it sustainable just to have like pure capitalism or whatever, you know? It's like at some point you have to rein it in and say what's what's sustainable. But it really comes about just, just doing it, just tell it to shut the fuck up and write. Like the story knows what it needs. Yes, you could create a robot that could create a facsimile of urine. So you're saying Elvis shouldn't have taken a shit, he should have went on stage. Maybe he wouldn't have died. And that was um, in memory of Richard Brodigan, who's my favorite writer. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank Mike you for being here. Mike Siba. Pleasure to be here. Mike, should, we, should I call you Siba or Mike? I don't know. Whatever you Mike. like. A lot of people call me Siba because it's like rarer than Mike. Yeah. yeah. I, like, like I kind of like Siba. I like calling you Siba because I don't know any other Sibas. Yeah. So it's unique. And you're unique. I think. I mean... Yeah. I'm the only Mike Seba I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I've met, I haven't actually met any other Justin Perkins, but I know there's some out there. I guess they're called, what are they called? Like um, name fellows? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I had this vision a long time ago, like, oh, that'd be a cool reality show. Get all the Justin Perkins together around a table. <laughs> this one guy, he, he, had a bill for some eye surgery at UCLA that I got. <laughs> like I never had any <laughs> eye surgery. Wow. Good thing you read your bills. <laughs> like paying some other guys' bills. So we both read your book. Yeah, I read it today. Awesome. Oh, that's amazing. In two sittings. At the laundromat, right? Oh, Apartment. three sittings. I'm sorry. At the laundromat, the cafe, and my office. Oh. Mm. Yeah. So um yeah, it was interesting. It was very and visual. It felt like a movie. Mm. I could really see it. Mm. And like, if I don't know if you're looking for this, but like, I'm like, what is this? Because you want to like categorize it, right? Obviously, there's some Franz Kafka in there, but there's also like Philip K. Dick and mm. the Celestine Prophecy. Mm. Yeah, I <laughs> so, can see that. So what? So what? Let's talk about that. So the title. What? What inspired the title? And what inspired the? What is? Kind of what inspired this book? I guess. Well, the um the title 
I came up with after I'd finished writing the, the first draft. And then when I went back and read it, um, I started to notice, um, I don't know what, why I was thinking originally of the catcher in the rye, but there were several things that reminded me of that, just sort of like this, uh, sort of a coming of age of somebody yeah. who kind of thinks he knows it all, or he's mm-hmm. just a little bit kind of got a chip on his shoulder and he's hasn't quite yet found himself. And I just saw like a lot of parallels between the stories. Um, and I, and I thought it would be kind of cheeky and cute to like sort of partly borrow a title from something. It's like, like yeah. I used to joke around. I said, like when I, um, when I publish my first novel, I'll, um, I'm going to use like a pen name that's like really close to a famous writer. Like I'll call myself Ernest Hemingway or something like that. <laughs> so when you're looking on the bookshelf, you'll just see it like right next to Ernest Hemingway. Like, oh, what's this? You know? nice, nice. So I thought that'd be a little pushing it if I called it Catcher in the Rye and borrowed, you know, another name. So, so you did Cat in the Rye. The Cat in the Rye. And I kept my real name, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I noticed that there were some, some parallels going on with the stories. Um, but that was an afterthought after I read it. Nice. And then as far as the inspiration for the story, um, as I mentioned on the, on the jacket, um, the, uh, the metamorphosis, the short right. story by, by Franz Kafka. Um, I, when I first read that short story, there, I was like, I really liked it, but I, I felt like there was like something missing or something like mm-hmm. I, and it, you know, I, I don't know if it's presumptuous or conceited of me, but I was like, I could like rewrite this better. <laughs> like, I honestly don't think that I'm as good a writer as Kafka, but somehow something about that story made me want to kind of retell it in a slightly different way. And I mean, that was years and years ago. Like this, I wrote the first draft of uh, Cat in the Rye about 12 to 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had read uh, Metamorphosis 20 odd years ago, you know. And even then at the very first, at the beginning, I thought, I want to kind of rewrite this someday, you know, before I even had taken the idea of writing a full novel seriously. You think it was because that was a, a cockroach versus a cat? <laughs> like, I know, and it wasn't that that bothered me. There was something about the um, the very dry style that, that he tells it, which now on further rereadings, I actually appreciate the tone of the story mm-hmm. because it's, you know, it's like there's this very fantastical thing happening and he states it so matter-of-factly. And, like, you know, like, when Gregor Samsa wakes up a cockroach, he's not like, why the fuck am I a cockroach? He's like, he's like, oh, no, I have to get to work, <laughs> you know? And then he's, like, right. start thinking of all these, like, this, like bullshit daily life routines that he's like, oh, I'm going to get fired because I can't get to work right. because I'm a cockroach. Not, like, how the hell did I become a cockroach? Yeah. On my first reading, I didn't, I didn't like, appreciate the irony of that as mm-hmm. much. Um, but also, I, you know, I like to write in a little bit more of a gregarious style I like humor and I like, you know, weird, weird shit. So I cracked up a bunch. It was fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I was laughing out loud. Awesome. I also, I also took the chance to listen to some of the music that he was listening to. Oh, nice. That was fun. Mm -hmm. Cootie Williams. Cootie Williams is Rug Cutter Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the uh, Lawrence Welk. Uh, Yeah. I didn't find the sodomy spiders. Uh, I made that one. (laughs) I figured some of it. Also, there was this one scene, I think it was when the guy was, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but there was a, like a neat, uh, a neat little sequence, uh, the, uh, the middle-aged man, friend of the lady, and there were all these uh, Pink Floyd references in that paragraph. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I bet there's a bunch more Easter eggs that I'm missing. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple other Easter eggs. That was, um, that was from a writing prompt. So a, another um, inspiration for that novel was a writing prompt that um, I read a book. There was a time where I was like reading a lot of books on writing 
And uh, Chris Beatty wrote a, 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 a book called No, Pro- no Plot, No Problem. And uh, he, he talks about like a way for writers to um, basically get rid of your internal editor, just shut down your editor and just, just write. You know, and just to get rid of that little voice that says, oh, it's got to be like this or it's like that. Because that's what hangs you up when, you, when you're writing your first draft. You want to just write and not really care because you can always go back and edit. You know? So that was kind of the whole premise of this guy's like, um, like training on how, how to like, be a better writer is just to like, get rid of your internal editor. Uh, and then he started a thing called National Novel Writing Month where every November uh, it's, a, it's a challenge where you write 50,000 words in 30 days. And uh, after I read the book and they realized that he did that and it's like a big online community and stuff. How many pages is that? 50,000 is about um, maybe 100 pages or so. Oh, yeah. So that was like the first half of The Cat in the Rye was when I did that. And then I skipped a year and then I did it again. And then I wrote the second half. Now, the, the rules of National Art Writing Month is you're supposed to do a, um, a standalone piece. They don't want you to like work on a piece that you're already – it's like I can break the rules if I want to. I, want, I wrote the first half for National Art Writing Month. Now I'm f- finishing with the second half, you know. So I, I broke the rules a little bit, but um, uh, so and then in because um, there's all these like um, forums and stuff for people that are taking part in that, and uh, they have like a bunch of writing prompts, you know, where people just come up with all these off the wall things just to get you writing, you know. Uh-huh. And one of them was something like you know, fit as many like uh, song lyrics or, or or song titles as you can into a paragraph or something. So I took the whole uh, Dark Side of the Moon and made a paragraph out of it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. And you know, you're the first person to have said something. I don't know if it, if it went over some people's heads or if they just didn't mention it to me, but you're the first person to say something. Oh, yeah. No, it, it, well, I mean, He's that's a classic of, album. You yeah. Know, Dark Side of the Moon. I figure it would be pretty obvious because where else, like, the great gig in yeah, the sky that's, is a yeah, giveaway. That's the catch. Know? Well, plus. And then I looked back, I was like, oh, breathe. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I saw the rest. Yeah, I tried to keep it in order and stuff. Yeah. He's very music uh, oriented and, and savvy about me. I mean, kind of a music buff, I would say. Yeah. I'm somewhere not. on the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, buff. I'm <laughs> I like that. It's the first time somebody called me buff. <laughs> You're like ripped on that music. <laughs> I Thanks, loved, bro. of course, I told you, I, I, um, I really liked the, the character Winston, mm-hmm. the, the tree. Yeah. And the, the relationship that the, I guess he's a, he's not a cat, but he's like becoming a cat. What is, he's not really a cat, but he's like. I, he's, I can't really say. It's weird. Like, it's like, sort of up to the, to the reader to, yeah, to determine yeah, that. Yeah. He's just, he's kind of having this experience yeah. as though he's transforming into a. I mean, we know that Winston is a tree. Yeah. But do we know what Mia is? Not really. Is she no. a figment of his imagination or, you know, it's, it's, there's, I, I wanted there to be enough uncertainty in the novel to let the the reader mm-hmm. wonder, you know. Yeah, but I thought that was a nice part with the the tree becoming a character. I thought I thought that was a good portrayal of how how a tree would be. It's kind of like wise, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, guardian type. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure why that came about. I um I did have a, an archetype in my head. For Winston, when mm-hmm. I read, like so, going back to uh, National Novel Writing Month, um, I only had the vaguest outline in my head when I started writing this book. It was basically all improv. So you know, in thirty days, I wrote fifty thousand words for the first half, and you barely have time to outline or plot. You're just writing. Right. You know, it's like sixteen hundred words per day. 
which is, you know, I don't know, like like maybe five or six pages per day. And um, so, you know, if you miss a day, now you're really getting the whole, it's like, so you got to just be writing constantly. And, um, but I did have an idea. I knew that I wanted to be about a guy turning into a cat. And I knew I wanted there to be a sort of a wise person. I, actually, I was thinking about um, Carlos Castaneda books and, um, and his, his relationship with both Don Juan and Don Gennaro and how they kind of have like dual roles, like, one is like the very stern teacher and one's like the kind of jokester. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to, to have that dynamic. I always, I loved the way that those books were written with that, with that, those relationships. Nice. And so Winston in a way was kind of like this Don Juan character in my head. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure why it, it just worked out that it was a tree that was pretty much just came to me as I was writing it, but it, it seemed appropriate. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that... Yeah. Sorry. I love it because, well, it's, you know, he's becoming this other it it kind of makes sense because you think like it instead of it being all about humans it, you you have this interaction with something other than human mm-hmm. you know yeah you can make friends with other things other thing other living beings yeah. and so and we don't usually think of trees as alive but obviously they are you know right and then i didn't realize that cat, you said you did some research about cats to find out that like to sort of so it would be more mm-hmm. and and do they just go and eat bugs like that is that a thing that well they're they are primarily carnivorous yeah uh, unlike so, dogs which will eat just about anything cats yeah. pretty much only eat other animals right or um and so that was just low-hanging fruit like you know so you see a moth or an insect on the street like you saw a bunch of like our my bugs. old cat used to just love hanging out on the porch and go when the sun would go yeah. down and the moths go around the light and he would climb up the screen and like whack, whack them off the light and stuff. And just eat them. Yeah, like we have cats. Our neighbor's cats come around here and are like are always like stalking and, and uh, hunting the lizards. Keep mm-hmm. us safe from the lizards. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I'm sorry. I don't mean to change the subject, but did you guys know that like 16% of dogs eat their feces? Okay, ew. They do what? Eat their feces. Like, eat them? I've ew. seen it happen. Ew. And they'll eat other people's feces too. Well, okay, not, okay, you said okay, they'll eat like, anything. Exactly. Yeah. Like, he, he, it's it's scatological with me sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, my mom told me that. <laughs> I've seen it happen. Yeah. yeah. It's a thing. Like, oh, this this little squishy rock looks tasty. Hmm. <laughs> 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 what is this? A burrito? Uh. All right. Let's change the subject. <laughs> so, um. What else? So, but you're, you're, that's really cool that you, you did, so you kind of started this as this, um, part of this program, this, uh, yeah, it's kind of an exercise in writing. Exercise but in the, writing, but did you have the idea beforehand? I, not really. I, I had the idea to write, so I've had started writing another book, um, which I'm now working on. The, uh, the book is called The Maryland Hotel. And, um, I'd first written, now this was like in the like very early aughts. I wrote um, a book of poems called Poems That Remember the Maryland Hotel. And that was because um, I lived in the Maryland Hotel in San Diego. It was a residential hotel that me and my friend moved into while we were kind of transitioning. And it was just a weird place. It was like kind of grunge. It was like the Chelsea Hotel of, of San Diego. Do you know Eddie? No. Is that Guitar yeah. Eddie? 
Oh, I think yeah, I think he, like, I do. Played like slant, like real heavy. And yeah, like, yeah, kind of kind of tweakery looking. Kind of tweakery, and yeah. he's like always played this like. Rah, rah. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I think he play, I think he stayed in a place like that. That's amazing because I um he's definitely in the book, but I didn't couldn't remember his name. What? So I'm and I use mostly real names of like people that were just came and went, uh-huh. like my good friends in the book that are because this is mostly autobiographical, and so out of respect for my friends, I've like changed like the major names. But people that just were like random people I met on the street and stuff, I keep their names all the same in case somebody reads it and says, oh, I remember that fucker, you know? <laughs> so so thank you. Because I bet you anything, I, th- I think that that's exactly him. Uh, he you had can't a unique miss style. Him. He always yeah. had like an electric guitar Electric with guitar him. and yeah, he just yeah. like played it really loud. Yeah. And, like, you He'd have like a little, little amp he'd carry with him. And- but they, when they amplified him, it was like, oh, now I get it. Mm-hmm. Now I get it. Before, if they could turn him down, yeah. like, I don't understand this. What right. is this guy doing? Yeah, yeah, you but see him sometimes him just going through without any amp at all, and you know, but he doesn't care. moving a mile a minute, and really crazy character. So, and this is the the Chelsea. You said what is this place? Called? I called it the Chelsea of San Diego. Right, the Chelsea of San Diego. Just it was just you know, there's a lot of weirdos, like and res- freaks, and and misfits, and druggies, and residential hotel. They call them like people have uh, they live yeah, there. Yeah, like you pay a weekly or monthly rate, and it's like it's like a halfway house kind yeah. of. Yeah, so, it's like. And you so know. this is your second book, which yeah, is... Yeah, the one I'm working on now, but it was the first more, one that I started writing. A more autobiographical, yeah, very much so. novel. Yeah, I actually have the book of poems with me here. Oh, cool. Because that's... Um, so I wrote the book of poems, and then uh, that kind of served as the outline for the book. Like, each of the poems is kind of like a chapter or like a, a memory or a person or this or that. So that's kind of... Whereas, you know, with again, with The Cat and the Ride, I didn't have any real outline at all. So mm-hmm. it's much more of a challenge for me to write trying to achieve something specific and like having right. this outline that I have to stay within to a degree. Yeah. It's a lot more challenging as a writer. Um, and also wanting to um, stay true to the subject, like the, of my memories, you know, mm-hmm. um, is any, is any of the, um, cat, the, the cat in the rye autobiographical? No, not really. No. I mean, there's like, I sort of pieced together little bits and things. Like I knew a guy that used to like buy weed to share with his friends, but he doesn't smoke weed. Okay. So like there's like one of the main his best friend in the book is that guy kind of. So the grandfather, no, no, no. I thought that was the. Um, my grandfather was not a con artist. <laughs> he was a musician, and okay. I I learned a lot about music. Like when my grandfather played the zither, like the Austri- uh, Austrian or concert zither, um, which is a crazy instrument because you play it's like it's like a guitar and a harp all in one, and you you kind of play with your four fingers. You playing like harp over here, like it's like playing rhythm and bass, and with your thumb you're playing like a guitar neck. So it's like this like like orchestral like string instrument it's amazing I used to sit on my grandpa's lap when I was a little kid and watch him play and so before I even knew anything about music theory I was like learning that stuff just by you know sitting on his lap so I got a lot of music from my grandpa just you know as a as a little kid um and so I in a way you know that's how I sort of ideas transform to like you know oh well I you know got all this vinyl in the book from him you know like my grandfather didn't really collect vinyl but he did introduce me to a lot of music you know nice and by the way, I love that you looked up that music in there because, uh, like, oh. Cootie Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, that was really uh, neat. That like, trumpet. He was the trumpet player for, um, for Duke Ellington. Uh, you were Duke Ellington, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and just, like, back when Duke Ellington, before he'd started his big band, he was playing with smaller bands, and that was, like, his main guy. Uh-huh. Fantastic music. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was like, whoa, yeah, this is a good listen. I feel like when you, when you see that in a book, that's a good cue. Listen to that music. It's yeah. really going to inform you in a, in a deep way. Yeah. And, and it, it seems to also that the music oftentimes will um, establish a certain or provide a, a setting for the for the book, right? It adds ambiance. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too, yeah. I think so because I, I think that just naturally came about because I am so obsessed with music that that just sort of naturally <laughs> became part of my character, you know? That makes sense, Because uh, yeah. like you said, like like I said, it's not, it's not autobiographical, but you've got to write kind of what you know, you know? Yeah. So if it, you're speaking in first person for a character, you tend to go into what you know or what you identify with. So you, you mentioned Lawrence Welk and, <laughs> yeah. San, and San Diego. Do you have connection to Lawrence Welk? No, I think that Because there's that Lawrence Welk section over in, like in Fountainhead. I think that was just um, an absurdist idea I came <laughs> when I was writing. Because, you know, again, writing just writing right by the seat of your pants. Uh-huh. Any odd idea that comes to you, you write it, you know? And which I loved as a technique because it's like, Otherwise, I would have probably never thought about writing. Yeah. But that I, makes your character real. Oh, he's this young kid that likes Lawrence Welk. Like, that's so odd. But it makes him seem more realistic because it's so weird. Like, why would you make that up, you know? Right. I learned about beautiful music about two, three months ago on a deep dive into mm. middle-of-the-road music. And then I learned about beautiful music. Oh, yeah, that is beautiful mm. music. Well, mm. Lawrence Welk was uh, – I did some research into Lawrence Welk when I, he became sort of an obsession of my characters. And I realized he actually was kind of a badass, and and the Lawrence Welk show had some really amazing people on it, and there's some of it you can find on YouTube, and there's some like pretty incredible performances, you know, especially compared to nowadays, like compared to like you know the Nicki Minaj's of the world and stuff, like there was some real substance to the music at that time, you know. Nikki, With all due respect to Nicki Minaj, Nikki, if you're listening, listening. <laughs> I'm gonna have to check out more. I'm I do not. I'm not very familiar. I did not check out the music. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. You probably uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I'll check it out. No. Right, we're going to give you a demerit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, but... Yeah, you're also a musician, too. I am, yes. And yeah. you, you went to school. You studied in India, right? Or you studied... No, I studied, I studied in California. Right. At the Ali Akbar College of Music. And uh, Ali Akbar Khan was very, very famous person that kind of brought ragas to the West. Okay. Um, he was like the... Like Ravi Shankar, everyone knows is like the main yeah. the sitar player that taught the Beatles and stuff. Ravi Shankar's master's son is Ali Akbar Khan, so okay. they're they're actually like kind of like step brothers because oh. um, Ravi Shankar's father died when he was rather young, mm-hmm. and uh, so his mom asked uh, Aluddin Khan, uh, my teacher's father, she said, "Can you um, you know kind of take care because he didn't have a dad anymore and you know and he wasn't provided for and such, and he showed some musical promise as well, so." So he kind of got like adopted into the the Khan family at that point. So um, yeah, so Ravi Shankar is like a stepbrother of my teachers. Nice. Um, and when did you learn that? That was in the early two thousands as well, right around when I started writing the Maryland Hotel. Super cool. What made you want to learn the sitar? I don't know. I just heard it. You know, like I mean, I was exposed to it like through the Beatles. Probably did you play first. guitar and stuff? Not really much of a guitarist. Like I can play a few chords. But I'm, I would not consider myself a guitarist by any stretch. Um, but I heard one time in person, a friend of mine had found a sitar like at a, at a, a garage or at a, at a Goodwill or something like that. And he and this guy was like actually a really good guitarist. And he picked up this thing and he didn't even know how to tune it. He just sort of tuned it to his own ear. And I was over at his house. We were like smoking some weed one day. And this guy pulls out this sitar and starts jamming on it. And I was blown away by the sound. And I was like, I want that, you know? That's I want that neat. in my life. Yeah. And then, but that was when I was like 18. And then, so it wasn't until I was like in my 30s that I actually reached out, like, you know, said, okay, I want to, I want to do this. Super cool. Yeah. It's a, and then we were lucky yeah. we have like a, like a most renowned teacher here on the West Coast where he's passed on now. But at the time I knew he was getting older and I said, I should really take advantage of it while I can. 
Like he's one of the most esteemed like garanas, like the musical family, they call it garana. And he's like one of the most esteemed garanas of India. So to to let that just pass by would have just been stupid, you know. Good work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the sitar. I also have have wanted to learn, but it's it seems like it's a it's a hard to learn. I mean, it's pretty a, physically challenging. Yeah, yeah. it I takes have, quite a bit of practice. I have a regret. I don't have too many regrets in my life, but I was in India and I spent one of these afternoons. I went there with my ex-wife. Which, which part of India were you in? Uh, we were uh, doing a, a trek up in Leh. Oh, okay. Up in Ladakh mm-hmm. in the north. And uh, we were in Delhi at the time. We were on our way back. And I was like, okay, I got a little money left over. Let me go see if I can buy a sitar. Mm-hmm. So I went to the sitar shop and the guy was telling me about the pumpkins and how they're aged for like mm-hmm. 13 years. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, okay. Well, it's this, much, this many rupees. Okay, I got this. And then I went to the gold store and thought about a, a ring for the lady. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting the ring. What a mistake. <laughs> Is this this lady we're talking about? No, no, no. It's, <laughs> okay, it's, it's, it's my ex-wife. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, rude. She's standing <laughs> Sorry, right here. Okay. <laughs> no, I, there's been no ring yet. Well, you know, you don't want to buy one in Delhi anyway. That's but, like the uh, last place you want to buy a sitar. Yeah. Because yeah. that's just like the most touristy. Like they're going to sell you a piece of crap in Delhi. You want to go to like Calcutta yeah. to buy a sitar, honestly. Yeah, I didn't get it. So I'm, I, maybe yeah. I made the right choice. Maybe yeah. it's not a regret. No, because you'll, you'll get charged double for, for half the quality. So yeah. Calcutta, Calcutta is, is like where most where of it's at. There's only a handful of families that are making sitars in India and they're basically based in Calcutta. Huh. So. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so it's like a sitar racket? I mean, well, it's a, it's handed down from father to son. Like I guess for it's not easy ages. To do. Yeah. So it's just, it's a, you know, just like as, it, like many trades used to be back in the old days or as it's still in the East. It's like you learn from your father, he learned from his father and on and on. Just like the musical lineages, the people playing it, and same thing with the people that make them, you know. What and then there's also families that just do the bridge, like, you know, the bridge for the sitar. What's it made of? I don't know the bridge for a sitar. Uh, well, less and less ivory. Uh-huh, but uh, that's uh-huh. traditionally it was an, an ivory bridge. Mine is an ivory bridge on, on my, the one I have here. Um, but yeah, there's, there's even smaller, there's like maybe like three main families that make bridges for sitars in India. Huh. And it's been passed on for many generations. They call it Jarwari. Is like the, it's the bridge, and it's also the, the art of knowing how to make the bridge. It's called Jarwari. Um, what is, so you got this sitar in Calcutta, or no, where did you? This one I bought. Funny enough story. This is a pretty interesting story. Uh, I was somehow I don't know what I was doing on Craigslist. I was looking for something else that I needed on Craigslist, yeah. and for shits and giggles, I typed in sitar mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, and. Uh, and the sitar came up, and I looked at it, and like it looks pretty nice. And he was he was only asking like four hundred bucks, which is pretty reasonable for the states. So I contacted him, and uh, it turns out the guy was um, he was like the uh, CFO of Sun Microsystems, like like major tech co- corporation. Huh. And he was um, the the man, the CEO, like his boss was trying to get him to move out to uh, uh, one of uh, Bangalore, I believe. It's like one of the big tech cities down in South India. And he was, um, so he flew him out there and he was showing him around the town. And uh, and his boss was like, they walked by a sitar place. And he said, oh, I should buy you a sitar. Because he was trying to sweeten the deal. He wanted him to move to India. He was going to get like a pay raise, but he'd have to live in India. And uh, so, he, you know, he's, and he was, I think the guy that I bought it from, he was like jokingly said, oh, you should buy me a sitar to sweeten the deal. And he went in the store and bought him the nicest sitar in the place. <laughs> and then the guy, and these guys was a guitarist. He got home. He's like, I can't play this thing, you know? And so he put it on Craigslist and I, I even talked him down. 
because he said, I don't remember exactly what he paid. I didn't buy it. My boss did. He's like, but I remember it was like the nicest one in the store. I'm like, well, since you don't know, I'm like, how about, will you take 300? And he said, okay. And it's, it's, it's a very nice guitar. Nice. It's actually the nicest one that I owned. Wow. So, you, own, you, so have, you, own you have many? Yeah. I own like another one that works and two broken ones that are uh, like in process of like, I want to make like a steel body, like electric sitar. Like oh, I'm going to use the bridge in the neck and like design a new body for it and stuff. But that's kind of a back burner project. Cool. So if I were going to buy a sitar, I mean, I'm not there yet, but like maybe it's a dream someday. Craigslist. Where, where, yeah. No, but uh, like, yeah. what about the States? I mean, can I get one here in the States? And what uh, You would go to the Ali Akbar College, yeah, oh, okay. because they have the school there. They have the, Although yeah. the, um, the school is more or less defunct now since Ali Akbar Khan passed. Oh, yeah. But That's they, when they uh, take the funk out. The store is still open. Okay. <laughs> so you can buy them there. And that's because, you know, that's coming from the Allard and Khan lineage. Right. Oh, speaking of which, I want to mention. Yeah, you had a story, right? about, um, Is this the one? Yeah, so, so Ali Akbar Khan was mine. He plays the Sarod. And he would learn, like his father, Aladdin Khan, who was very what? esteemed. The I'm sorry, the Sarod. We don't know. The Sarod is, um, it's kind of like a sitar, but it has like a, um, you know, like how banjos have like a skin uh, face, uh-huh. like kind of like a drum head. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that. And then, um, and it's fretless and it has like a polished steel, like really wide um, fretboard that's like curved and, and smooth metal. And like so a violin kind of thing? Yeah, but you play it with your, the tips of your fingernails. You have to grow your nails out and you play just the string, you slide it fretless. Ah. And it's even more challenging than the sitar, I, I think. Uh, but that was m- what my teacher played. So when I was learning from him, I had to like translate everything because you know, he's sliding up and down the neck and I'm bending the strings horizontally while he's moving vertically. So it was difficult because I'm a very visual person and I couldn't follow him visually. I had to like kind of do math in my head to be like, Oh, when he goes up, I turn left. You know, it was, right. was kind of hard. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so he played the Sarod, um, and uh, his father, Aladdin Khan, they were a, a Muslim family, and they uh, part of their um, spiritual upbringing was that they uh, they don't cut their hair, and so they have like really long hair. And Aladdin Khan, when his teacher was away, he would uh, he 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 would take his hair and like bundle it up and tie a piece of rope around it, like, like a big ponytail, and then tie the rope to the rafters in the ceiling. And then, um, and then he would, like, you know, be up, like, practicing, like, just doing his exercises. And with his, his hair would be pulled taut to the, to the roof of the, or to the ceiling. So if, you know, if he started to, like, nod off, like, fall asleep, it would, like, pull his hair, and he would, like, wake up <laughs> and keep practicing. Because he's supposed to practice for, like, hours and hours every day, you know. They say it takes like seven years to master like the sitar before you can even begin to like perform professionally. So there's like a lot, a lot of practice that goes into it. So that was um, his thing. And I, when I heard that story that um, Ali Akbar told us about his father, I said, that's wild because, you know, I've done a lot of study into like lucid dreaming and I can just imagine that like weird hypnagogic state that you would mm-hmm. be in when you're like mm-hmm. half awake and then making music and, and then just be like teetering on the oh, brink of consciousness. Oh, that's a good I can yeah. only imagine. I haven't practiced that, but I imagine that would be quite something. Well, and but, also he must have had really long hair in order for it to reach all the way up. Well, no, he tied the rope and then oh. I don't think his hair was that long. Okay. I just know that they, <laughs> I was like, um, wow. But that was part of the story that was told to me that they didn't cut their hair as part right. of their spiritual <laughs> practice. Is this I was just reason? imagining really long hair because he said, oh, they didn't cut the, the hair. And yeah. Then, and then like, he tied his hair to the ceiling so with a rope. Okay, I see what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, yeah he cheated with the rope a little bit. Okay. 
I don't know if his hair ever got like long enough to reach. Like you guys have high ceilings. That would be impressive if you could do that here, you know? <laughs> All right. You hear that, Bob? What? I'm going to practice. I'm going to hang you from the ceiling. <laughs> no. Tie you up. Um, so. Yeah, we're in, a, we're in a never ending quest to become better musicians. There you go. Tie yourself to the ceiling. <laughs> Say uh, tried and true method. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, you know, these, these musical practices of, of like the, the Garanas, uh, it's the Maihar Garana that, that I This is the family from. of teachers yes. and family musicians. And it, they can trace that lineage of music back like over a thousand years, you know, like to like the, uh, like the, the Middle Ages or whatnot. The Khans, like the Genghises and yeah. whatnot. Well, no, Khan is a very common name. Oh, okay. In fact, there's different Garanas that are all named Khan, but they're like different splits of the name Khan. Are these Khan men? I don't think so. They didn't con me. In fact, they were very reasonable. Like I went there, when I went to the school, I was broke. And I'm like, you know, I can't, I don't know if I can afford, you know, like, cause they were like, oh, you should take the, the vocal class and the instrumental class and the introductory class. I'm like, are you trying to con me here? You know, and they're like, like, no, you really need to have all this background <laughs> to sit at, at yeah. Ali Akbar's feet. We call him Khan Saab is, a, you know, the Sahib is like a, a term of respect. So Khan uh -huh. Saab is what we call him. But they're like, to sit at Khan Saab's feet, you need to, be versed in what the fuck you're doing. So these are all the prerequisites that you should, that you should know. Um, but that's absolutely true. Like you absolutely need to have that knowledge to, you know, go on. And I said, I don't, I don't think I can afford to take all these three classes. And they said, well, we'll, we'll work with you. What can you pay us? You know, because you were serious about yeah. it. They yeah. literally just said, you name the price and we'll do it. So that's, that's quite so amazing. Cool. Wow. And I had a friend there that, um, this guy, Joel, he, um, he stayed in a closet there at the school. They have like these, like, storage rooms where they have like sitars and tablas and stuff and he couldn't afford whatever and they're like like here you you can stay sleep in this like closet thing and uh and you know just do some work around the shop and you can live here and get you all your lessons and oh, that's cool he like literally lived in one of the like storage closets though you know like you see him like you, there's like this raised little cubby hole and there's like there's drums Joel. and stuff around him and he's <laughs> <Wow. just> like, <laughs> that's super cool though um, you know, Joel from the closet. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, where's that? You know, like, because they would send him on errands and stuff because he's always around. Like, yeah. where's Joel? We need this or that, you know? I broke a string. Call Joel. Yeah. Hey, that's free, free education for. Yeah. And, and he's living for free in Marin County. <laughs> like one of the, the most expensive real estates in the world. East is side? San Rafael. North side? It was in, like right outside of downtown San Rafael. Wow. So kind of, yeah, I guess that's uh, do central. Know, do you know uh, Shel Silverstein? Yeah. I mean, not personally, but yeah. where the, the sidewalk ends. The Great Smoke Off. It takes place in sunny San Rafael. Oh, really? Between Pearl. And she could roll the joints as fast as anybody could roll them. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> and the guy who could, the kid who could smoke them faster than anybody could roll them. I haven't read any of his adult stuff. No, this is, this is a, it's an audio. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, I only know, like, you know, where the sidewalk ends and stuff like that. I know. He's got some adult stuff. Oh, cool. He's I'd love to check Playboy. that out. He's a great writer, yeah. poet. They send him all around the world to do stories and send pictures back. Oh, like wrote articles and stuff? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Articles. I'm, I'm doing quotes. So was that, I wonder if that was when Robert Anton Wilson was the editor. Oh, I don't know. Because Robert Anton Wilson was the he's editor of Playboy guy. for, like, I think the like, late 70s, early 80s was when he was. Oh, no, back. this was, I think, in the, the early 60s. Oh, okay. They send him to Moscow and stuff. Yeah, Robert Anton Wilson is, is certainly what I would consider a, uh, an influence on my writing. Uh -huh. 
you know, his just sort of like, Oh, he's great. Chaotic, like, you know, a little pull, a little bit of everything. Like I'm jealous that he wrote the Luminous trilogy. Cause like, I, oh, like, man, I wish so I could have wrote that. You know? so good. I mean, uh, he didn't even write it by himself, but. Oh, know. he didn't? No, it's uh, co-written with uh, Robert Shea. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember that. But I know he talks about belief systems. Mm-hmm. BS. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. He almost, he almost takes not believing anything into a dogma of itself. You know, because he's like so anti-belief systems that that's his belief system. And he's so staunchly anti-belief system that it becomes its own dogma. I feel like... It's kind of ironic. I feel yeah. like Robert Anton Wilson is like very... Um, what... Uh, Bob Dobbs adjacent. Oh yes, I'm. I'm sure they come from the same like um, like there's like the the Discordians and stuff. The Arisians. There's like there's like religions that were born out of that whole philosophy and stuff. Like I think a lot of them. You know about the Discordians? I don't know the Discordians. Yeah, they say they have a, a slogan: "We don't make sense, but we love pizza." <laughs> <laughs> but I think they were mentioned in the Illuminos trilogy. But there, there's one of those things that are actually real. You know, okay. like that's the thing when you read that book, it's like you never know what like there's a lot of things that are based right. on facts yeah, and yeah, some yeah. that aren't. And some of the most outlandish things that you think he made up are actually real and vice versa. Did you ever hear of a um I, I think I came across Robert Anton Wilson through the realist. Did you ever hear about that magazine? No. It was like an underground paper from the sixties. Mm. Paul Krasner was the editor. Oh, cool. I don't know who that is, yeah. Yeah. From uh, uh Jefferson Airplane, right? No, 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 oh, no. Paul Cantor. Oh, <laughs> But same idea, 60s yeah. and underground. Was he, was he a, like a, a writer? He was a writer, and yeah. he had this underground magazine called The Realist. Uh-huh. And, uh, I've heard Randall. that name. Yeah. He was a comedian, too. Oh, yeah. Which is another of your pursuits, too. Yeah, I love doing comedy. Oh, uh, so fun. That's like my next challenge, because I'm like, okay, I can play the sitar. I can go on stage and play the sitar for Indian people without feeling nervous. <laughs> really? That's um, impressive. Yeah, I, I mean, I've done, I've played it enough times now. Like, I had a... Um, there was a person who was like an agent that I uh, was working with for a while. And I, I was busking in Mountain View. I like to like busk and just put, you know, put this, the hat out, so to speak. And um, India, uh, uh, Silicon Valley and Mountain View, there's tons of Indian people there like working oh, okay. in the tech industry. And uh, so that's kind of where I cut my teeth performing. It was like on the street in downtown Mountain View. And uh, this gal passed by one time and she was, a, uh, you know, an agent and a promoter. And we exchanged info and she got me a gig. It wasn't a paid gig, but it was really good exposure because... I was um, playing for this, uh, it was the uh, United Nations, um, having this meeting. It's like a think tank in San Francisco at the Westin. And, uh, and it was like a really fancy thing. And like the, the, the richest CEO in the world, or the second richest guy is like this guy from India. It's like some tech guy. Um, he was like the keynote speaker. And there was like all these like big people there. And, uh, and I got to play music for, at the beginning of it and during intermission. And uh, I was nervous as hell. But uh, after that, I was like, okay, I just played for the richest guy in the world and he gave me props. So now I'm fearless, you know, like I've made my prop, got my props now, <laughs> you know, even though I didn't get paid for that gig, you know, but. Well, that's how they stay the richest people in the world, right? <laughs> oh, you know, well, so that gal, I'm not going to name any names, but she, um, she got me another gig and we had agreed online uh, for a, a flat rate that I was going to get paid for this gig. It was at the, uh, at Ashkenazi's in, in Berkeley. And uh, there was uh, like three or four bands that we were playing and uh, we agreed on a, on a set price. And at the end of the night, she came up to me, she had some cash in her hand and she was like, oh uh, yeah, like this other band, like they were coming from out of town and you know, I promised them X amount of money and like we didn't get that many people. So she's like, is like, is like $20 okay? <laughs> I just looked at her like, what? No, like we had a contract, like you, you owe me like $250 or whatever it was. 
And she's like, well, yeah, but I got, I'm like, well, it's, it's a contract. Like, I'm sorry. No, like, I wouldn't touch her money. I'm like, until you pay me, like, I'm not going to take like a little piecemeal $20, like kind of an insult, you know? And, uh, and she was just like, I don't know. She kind of walked off and I told my friend, Chris Cotton, who's I tour managed for and stuff. And he's, he knows a lot of barrier musicians. And he's like, like, I'm, he's like, I'll, I'll write her an email. He's like, you know, because he, like, knows a lot of important people in the music industry. So he wrote her email. He's like, look, if you want to work as a promoter in this town, you better pay Mike Seba his money. And she fucking paid me, like, the next day. I was like, wow, I was blown away. You hear that, promoters? Yeah, don't fuck <laughs> with pay me. Pay Mike Seba. <laughs> don't, don't fucking squelch on your pay, you know, especially when it's in writing. I mean. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's tough being a musician. Insert promoter joke. Yeah. Where, well, where it's like they say, oh, you know, do you do this gig? It's for it, it, exposure. You know, it's good for exposure. And I saw the yeah. meme. It says, people die of exposure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're having a hard time getting gigs. I was thinking of exposing myself. <laughs> well, I mean. Uh, well, we got a couple gigs, yeah. I can get you gigs, but you don't pay anything. <laughs> no, I mean like paying gigs. Yeah, it's hard. We, um. Have you seen awesome thing? Have you seen the flight of the Concords? You know that, yeah. Oh, they're great. I just we I Justin just introduced me to them recently, and oh, beautiful! I love you. Watched the show too. Oh, I loved yeah, that's it. How I we, loved that's it. that's and, what we did. Yeah, yeah. I think they were just music before this show. Yeah. Were they? I think so. Yeah, but no, I watched the show and I I thought it was you know very funny, clever, cute, but it reminds <laughs> it just kind of I could really relate, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Being this. Who wants to rock the party? <laughs> Those guys are great. I told you I am freaking. That's some old school you. comedy, you know? It's like, yeah. Well, I guess it's not that old, but. 2008, 2009. Yeah. But it's got, it's got the vibe of like old school skit comedy, you know? Like just, there's something, there's, there's not enough of that, I think, you know? Like I really like Ooh. just like skit, skit, so like the kids in the hall, they're not got a new thing. Do you do stuff like that? Are you involved in any kind of sketch comedy? I'd love to. I mean, oh. I'd. You know, I come up with ideas all the time. We'll like, you know, get drunk and be like, oh my God, that would, you know, that would make a cool skit. You know, and then yeah, I don't even like usually it. write it down because I don't know anyone producing skit comedy. Look, you know? We should, we should make a collective. Let's make do something it. like that happen. We should. Yeah. There's, um, seems, there's resources too yeah, for, you know, NCTV. Talk yeah. to, Plus, exactly. it seems talk natural, a natural um, niche for you because you're a writer and a comedian and you have, I mean, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just think of that. You'd be a good. Well, it, you know, you, like you said you. that the um, Justin, you said that the book seemed kind of cinematic or very visual. Yeah, it was. And I was seeing the whole thing. So it was that very visual. That, and I think about that sometimes with my comedy because I, you know, I do a lot of memes. I'm also a meme lord, right? So, um, what is a what is a meme lord? A meme lord is just means somebody that makes memes. Like you know, everybody shares memes, but someone made that meme. You okay. Know? Yeah. Right. So, I make, so you do I that. make memes. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, a meme page on Facebook called uh, I Made Another Meme for You to Look At. And it's all of my original content. There's, I've got like hundreds of memes on there. Because I've seen a lot of the memes you've shared. I didn't uh -huh. realize you were making them too. Yeah, if you, if you follow uh, I Made Another Meme for You to Look At, that's all my original content. Oh, that's there. really neat. That's really neat. Because I think that that's, that's sort of like a seed to culture, right? I mean, this is what memes originally meant, right? Right. The Richard Dawkins. Yes, me originally meme just meant an idea that spreads, right? Uh -huh. It was a take on the word gene. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about memes as memes that we talk about as memes that meme lords make. I knew mm. memes as this idea. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I was in a. I well, was you're more well read than the average meme person then. Well, I was teaching English in, in Prague at the time. And oh, yeah. I was telling, this is one of our themes was memes. 
And then, uh, oh, you mean like memes, like on the internet? I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, <laughs> and so they taught me about memes. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's a meme. Well, it's interesting how memes became a meme, <laughs> if you will. You know, it's like somehow this idea of like taking an image macro, you know, an, uh, an image with a caption, uh-huh. and that just became like the new medium for the internet. Like, okay, and it, that, that just that strikes it a just, chord. It really fits. It, it's like the smallest like the, unit of comedy that you can create. You the know? internet like, was made for memes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And which cute which was, cat pictures and stuff. Which, uh, well, you just yeah, cats. Um, what's <laughs> I always got to stir it back to cats, don't I? <laughs> you remember that book, uh, Hundred One Uses for a Dead Cat? <laughs> no, but I know some jokes like that. <laughs> um, so you were gonna read a poem, right? What? Did, what's all that? Oh yeah, this is a uh, this He's is got my paraphernalia. book. Um, poems that book. remember the Maryland Hotel. So this is the book in the making. This, this, yeah, this is just a mock-up of the cover here. It's a, it's a picture of the Maryland Hotel, and it says the Maryland Hotel in cursive for those people that can't see it. Nice. Um, speaking of cursive, when I wrote this book of poems, this is the original copy, and I had a, a, a typewriter that writes in cursive. Did you know what? that was a thing? I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, check it out. What? Oh, typewriter nice. that writes in cursive? I've never yeah. seen that. I oh. found it at a thrift store, and I bought it That's for like pretty 10 neat. bucks. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm really kicking myself that I got rid of it. Oh, you got rid of it? Yeah. How I've much? lost everything I've owned twice in my life. Like, where everything that I owned just went away somehow. It's happened twice. And the second time it happened, I'm like, you know what? You just can't, you know. But, it's, you know, it's those little mementos and things that you really care about. It's not like the, the financial value of things. It's like, oh, that T-shirt that I got in Philadelphia or, you know what I mean? It's like. My thing. Those things that aren't replaceable or the, the yeah. things that really suck to lose. But, um, so, yeah, you guys want to hear a poem from the. Yeah, let's hear a poem. So I'm, I'm thinking about um, kind of as a, maybe like an uh, appendix to the, uh, you know, or an addendum of some sort to the, the book, The Maryland Hotel, is I will just include the whole book of poetry because it sort of was the the conception of it all. So I might do that, like maybe at the end of the book, I'll just have the poems that, that inspired the novel. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two that are kind of relate, because, you know, this, it's a book, so it's sort of chronological. And so there's sometimes like poems that refer to poems that were told previously. So I'm going to, uh, I think you guys heard this one at Open Mic at the Muse, um, but I'm going to read it again because it kind of is a, leads up to another one I'm going to read. So, okay, and this is and this is going to be in your your new book. Yeah, so this is uh, my poetry book called Poems That Remember the Maryland Hotel, which I'll most likely include as like an you know an appendix. Just have the little book at the end. Right. Of the, cool. What's wait? Well, this is not the name of the novel. Then it's a novel. As the well? novel is gonna at least the working title is the Maryland Hotel. I see. Right, and then this is poems that remember the, them. Yeah, got it. So okay, so this one's called the funny. The funny thing is. The funny thing is, that hotel was the only room in any hotel or motel that I'd ever seen to be without two things, a television and a Bible. The TV would usually be sitting on a stand facing the bed. The Bible was usually in the drawer in the nightstand next to the bed. The Maryland Hotel had neither. It was a Zen treat that way. I asked John why he thought they didn't have a Bible there like if it had been stolen or if the management didn't want their residents to be reading Bibles for some reason, or he said, maybe they're Jewish. John was Jewish. I said, or maybe they're into Satanism. 
I wasn't a Satanist. He said, no, if they were Satanists, there would be a TV. But somehow, I don't see some evil priest garbed in black robe with his magical paraphernalia ominously surrounding him in his dark personal chambers watching The Price is Right. <laughs> so then, and this is sort of a follow-up poem. There were several other things that the hotel room didn't have, like birds or grass or crickets, gazelles. There was no creek running through it, no breeze rustling through trees, no pebbles, veins of mineral deposits, moss growing upon metal, flame-red mushrooms rising from a living carpet of decomposing forest, no deer casting footprints in snow, no snow, canyons, stars, oceans, no good place for a campfire, no room to even pitch a tent. We would not sit on a log in that room to catch a few trout while telling stories or watching Venus pass into Orion. It never rained either. And that was um, in memory of Richard Brodigan, who's I was, my favorite writer. I was writer. feeling that with yeah. the trout and yeah. everything. That was, that was my thought. That was exactly my thought. That, that was, was great. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, he's, I, that, he's just a genius of a writer, in my opinion. Probably my favorite author. When people oh. press me for my favorite writer. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. um, watermelon yeah. Sugar. That was the first one I read oh my it as, yeah. The Tigers. Yeah. <laughs> or the, the, I found this object. I didn't know how to hold it in my hand. It was like no object I'd ever seen before. So I didn't know how to hold it. Wow, what an image, you know? Nice. No, have, you, have, have, you read, have you read Richard Brodigan? Not much. Oh, no. Actually, I, I take it back. The first book I read of his was uh, Dreaming of Babylon. A friend of mine read that, and he's like, dude, you got to read this book. It's weird. And he gave it to me, and it's called Dreaming of Babylon. And it's like, it's like his take on it, like a, on a like gumshoe detective novel, like a right. pulp novel. Right, right, um, right. Except the, the, uh, the actual detective is a little bit crazy and like, yeah, it's like written in the first person. And it, he came to a tragic end. Yeah, sadly mm. so. Yeah, his, his daughter wrote a, um, a sort of retrospective biography of her father. Really? And uh, it's a r really good book if you want some more insight into his personal life. Because she was a little life. kid, right? Yeah, yeah. She didn't know him that well, but she knew him a lot through his writings as well. And she actually had a lot of tidbits of writings that were never published and I stuff. Bet, and yeah. So she talks a lot about him as a writer and uh, and their relationship. What's it called? Uh, it's called You Can't Catch Death, hmm. which is um it's kind of a tragic thing. Like she um for years she was thinking about writing this book. She's feeling some pressure to do it. Like I think from like friends and publishers that were like, you should really you need to write about your father. And and she was like, well, you know, I didn't feel like there was something about like, you know, his suicide. Like I felt, I just didn't want to like face it. I didn't want to like, you know, it's like, I felt like if, if I got too close to his existential pain, I would feel it myself. And like, maybe it would like pass it on me or something like that. And, and she said, a really good friend of mine said, you know, you can't catch death. It's not like the flu. You know, she's like, you really need to write that book. So that's where she got the title from. Huh. Nice. It's a good title. Um, yeah, I'm going to check him out now. Fantastic. Sure. Yeah. And anybody My favorite novel read of Richard his Brodigan. is, um, yeah, for sure. do it, uh, is a, a Confederate general from Big Sur. I think that's his masterpiece. Mm. Oh, okay. I don't know if I've read that one. It's great. 
I just accidentally no, I touched my eye. Oh, uh, jalapeno, jalapeno eye. fingers. I I, I guess oh, that's I, good for radio. I, well, I didn't think I still had jalapeno on my finger. I Did washed you wash it off. Yes, I washed my. But I just like. Well, I now just you got it in my your eye. eye. Now in I there. can't see. <laughs> yeah, maybe we, this Fuck. is a good time for a break. Yeah, let's take a break. Yeah, because I'm crying. Ow. So, so the, like, my biggest marketing for my novel has been um, going to the bars with my books on me. Mm-hmm. And just talking to people and like, oh, someone would be like, oh, this guy wrote a book, you know? And then I was like, yeah, I'm right here. And then they'll, <laughs> then they'll buy it off of me. Yeah, nice. And then, but sometimes I get into like hustle mode where I'm like, I really want to like go out and like sell some novels. I'll go to the yeah. bar and then I'll see drunk people and I'll just go up. Because at first I started saying like, uh, hey, do you like to read? And like <laughs> nine times out of 10, people are like, no, nah, I don't really read, you know? I know. It's so weird, right? How can, how can, I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I read memes. <laughs> so, so I started, I changed it to, instead of, um, do you like to read? I say, do you know how to read? And then that catches people off guard. Wait, do I know how to read? Yeah. I'm like, oh, then you should read, you should buy my book. You know, <laughs> it's a good icebreaker. Yeah. Unfortunately, I do not have a website set up to buy my novel. You just have to contact me personally, but. That's right. It's just. Well, they can buy your book on Amazon. They can, but don't do that because Amazon takes like 70% of the, of the list price. Oh, well, then why do you even sell it on there? That's awful. Yeah. Because I'm 70%. So, so I have it published. It's like publishing on demand through Amazon Kindle. And uh, you could set your own retail price, but then Amazon takes 70% of whatever your list price is, basically. What? Um, but you get it for a good price, right? Yes, I can buy author copies for cheaper, and then, then I make about 70% of the cost, you know. So yeah. So are you gonna have a website? You know I should because it, it's been selling well. Like I've I've sold probably like three or four hundred copies just through word of mouth, and like you know it'd be handy to be able to say oh just go to my website and stuff like that. You're having beer with chai. That's weird. In here. Beer and chai. <laughs> the dessert of champions. <laughs> okay, this is an interesting podcast. Yeah, beer first. Take a beer, beer sip, and, and then chai. chai sip while it's still in the mouth. <laughs> no, I'm Swallow first, and then our, I would recommend. Our last guest was his beverage of choice was well, he was he'd had mushrooms. <laughs> beverage of choice was mushrooms, <laughs> pretty much. Oh, that's hot. So, so we got we got well, no, he was having chai. Uh, he, no, he was having the special tea you made with lily bulbs and stuff. And he had mushrooms. he'd had psilocybin clarity. But now we've got beer and chai. Hmm. It's good, you know, beer and chai. When I was in India, I like, um, well, no, before I got, to, when I first went to India, mm-hmm. I took uh, Singapore Airlines. And uh, so I, my stopover was in Singapore. Um, and I did that, you know, for a couple reasons. Like most people fly into Delhi and they, so they go, they'll stop over. Like if you're coming from the States, you'll fly and do a stopover in like, like Hamburg or something like that, you know, somewhere in Europe and then go to Delhi but I was going to the east coast of India, like Calcutta. So, so I had to like stop over somewhere in Asia, and I heard that Singapore Airlines is like the, the like oh, really nice. top. So, um, so my first time ever in South Asia, and I, you know, I got off the plane. I'm walking around Singapore, and one of the guys on like one of like uh, pedal pedal bikes. Um, what, do you, what do you call those? Like yeah, like a pedal rickshaw. And uh, you know, he's shooting me around town. He's like, where do you want to go? And I'm like. I'm like, you know, I could use a beer, man. I've been cooped up on this plane for like 20 hours. Like, let's go grab a beer somewhere. He's like, okay, where do you want to go? And I'm like, can you take me to like the local place, like where you would get a beer? 
And he's like, okay. So he like took me like off the beaten path to this little weird little hole in the wall place. We come out, it's like plastic tables and chairs and they come out and, and I'm like, let's, you know, can I get you a beer? And he's like, no, no, I'm working. I can't. I'm like, we'll just have a little bit. He's like, and he's like, okay. So I <laughs> talked to this guy into drinking and driving with me. Way to go, America and, uh, corrupting the world. <laughs> but, they, but they were like, uh, you know, what do you want? It's like, there's like two kinds of beer, basically. It's like strong or mild. And it's like, the strong is just like this, like really bitter, like malt liquor. Like, oh. it's pretty nasty. Wow. Or mild. But I was like, ah, we'll go for the strong. I didn't realize it was going to taste like, like, like not your grandpa's King Cobra, you know? It was like, <laughs> it was bad. And, uh, but it, he brings it out. And there's like uh, two glasses with ice. He cracks it, b- pops open the bottle of beer, and just starts pouring it right into these like glasses of ice. And I'm like, "What are you doing, man? Like, you know, it's pouring." But you know, it's very common in Asia. Like they have like rolling blackouts like every day, and they, so their shit's not always cold. Mm-hmm. So um, that's beer just normal there. to put beer and ice and beer. And oh wow! Was, like you know, after I was there for a little while, it became normal. But that was my first impression of South Asia. He's like, what the fuck are you doing to my beer? You know? Like, and they didn't ask. They just poured it right in. Like after I'd already paid for it. Like, okay. What we do. So, um, but so, and then I got to uh, Calcutta and uh, I'm, you know, I had just, um, I walked around Calcutta. I was in town for like a week or so when I bought, um, bought a sitar there. And, uh, and then I was like out on the streets playing it. And, the, uh, and I met some, this like, this family, there, um, there's like a drummer, this lady, she's amazing. Her voice is so powerful in her drumming. And she's just like this like powerhouse of a musician. And like this guy that's with her that plays the harmonium. And they just like travel around. They're like, like traveling musical troubadours that just go all around India and just play music on the streets and people donate money to them. And, you know, but it's different like than like busking here in the States. It's just a different vibe. Like that's really all they do for a living. And like, and it's like, they're kind of their own little, little cast. And um, so they were one of the first friends that I met in India, you know. And uh, she said, oh, you know, we should, when I bought my sitar, she's like, we should have like a puja, like a musical uh, thing. And, and I said, yeah, um, actually the hotel that I'm staying in, they keep, they've been harassing me. They say, oh, come do like a rooftop concert, you know. And like um, they heard me playing sitar in my room, you know. And they're like, oh, you should do a concert for us. And so finally one day I coordinated with uh, this family that I met, the, the musicians, and I said, are you free like Wednesday evening, six o'clock, let's say. And they said, yeah. I said, all right. And I told the hotel people like, hey, we're going to do this, you know. And uh, so I show up six o'clock. I got my my musical band with me. And the man says, no, no, no. I'm like what? And he's like, he like wouldn't let them walk into the building. Why? Whoa. You know? And, casting? And I was like, yeah, it was a casting because they're like, they're not like untouchable. Like the musician's class is almost lower than the untouchable class. Like, Are they like what we would say? I want to be politically correct here. Um, Roma. Yeah, well, Romani or- a lot of them actually have the, those roots. But um, but it's just, as far as like their caste system is concerned, like musicians are at the very bottom, huh. which is weird because they are also the court musicians. Like they would live in the palaces, but in their own separate quarters. But they were like the court's musicians. They would play for these kings and maharajas. At the invitation of the king only. And only, yes. They weren't. They didn't eat in the same room as them no. or sleep anywhere near them. You know. So, and I didn't really realize how how distinctive that that was. That they couldn't even set foot on the property. And, but oh. you know, I was like, well, you asked me to have a concert, and I, these are my musicians. And he's like, no, like under no circumstances would they let my band come into the, wow. on the property. And I said, well, then your con- your concert's canceled. And uh, and I would like to check out of here because that's bullshit, you know. Oh. 
And, uh, and I did, I checked out that day and then I went around the corner. I knew there was a, a guest house that was a Muslim run guest house. And I went over there and I said, hey, I'm, Different rules I'm allowed now. to bring people in here that are like whatever guest. I was like, yeah, we don't care, no problems. Huh. So we had to reschedule my concert a couple of days later over there. But, so that was a big disillusioning moment for me of like, you know, coming from the West and like this, like Hinduism just sounds like this really cool magical religion. And it's, oh, it's all love. It's and so we're going peaceful. To and it's like, but then you see the dark side of it. It's very dark, you know, because, and even like the concept of karma, it's like, oh, uh, like you, you like mistreat people in the lower caste because that's their lot in life. Like their previous karma is why what? they were born into a lower caste. Uh-huh. So you, you're just doing their destiny to treat them like shit. You're helping them Oh out. my gosh, uh-huh. what? And that's like so ingrained. It's not even, it's not even like a bigoted thing because it's just ingrained into their society. But doesn't that affect the karma of the person treating? I mean, I thought, what about, well, of course it's there's- their karma to do that. That's right. They're fulfilling their karma by treating them like shit. Right? What? So you were, you were born a rag picker. Now, and, and I'm a landowner. Now, it is my duty to treat you like a rag picker. Oh, really? Because that's your lot. Like, and you will never, that's why they that's love, weird. why it's we so have so many, like, because, you know, Indians do have like a pretty good education system. And so if they can, if they have the, the means to get out of India and come to the West to become like computer programmers and such, that is like the big time for them because here they can break out of their caste. Mm-hmm. Like if they're back home, you you will never, never, never. No you could win the lottery, you you're still going to be in that caste and what? be treated as such. Wow. And there's enough social cues that you can't pretend that you're not that caste, you know? Hmm. Um, so, so if you get to, you know, so they treated me almost like this god because I live outside of their caste system. They, they envy that like really amazingly, you know? And, uh, and then they said, you know, I play the sitar. And they're like, where did you study? And I said, through um, Ali Akbar Khan. And they're like, ah, oh, because he's also like a god to them. So then I was like, now doubly, you know, they would literally treat me like a fucking god. But a musician, an actual musician. Yeah, that studied under like one of their most like celebrated, like, you know, garanas. So I said, I didn't like being treated that way. So I realized quickly, like, just when people say, where did you study? I said, oh, here and there. Because I don't like being treated like I'm just this, like, you know, it makes me feel really uncomfortable. I think. Like, to try to be a humble person and stuff. So yeah, well, it's weird because it's very different from Christianity. Or well, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. But the idea that you know, I mean, because I would think that our karma is affected in this life by what we do. I thought that was the concept of karma. So like, you know, so you you want to do unto others as you would have them do unto right. you and be kind and be giving, right? But it seems that's like actually that's, more of a Western idea very, of karma. Interesting. I guess I got karma wrong. Should I just, I mean, like, am I just fucked no matter what I do? Like, no, my karma's to, already set. Move to India. Is that like the idea with that? what they're saying? Is it seems well, like just that, don't buy into that, that system, you know? Right. But it seems like that's what they're saying is that the karma is like, okay, well, what, our karma in this life is you're, already, you're born into it and yeah. you can never change it no matter what you do. You, if somebody's born a rag picker, they can do all the good deeds in the world, they could become a millionaire somehow. They're still going to be that in that. Well, same but I thought they, they could at least they could do things in this life that would that would improve their karma. No, no not no, really according to the, the Hindu conception of karma. Well, their caste maybe karma they can improve. Caste? Yeah, because caste and karma are different. Okay, right. but you're talking yeah. about karma. Well, as so if the it's caste system, the, the, the philosophy of karma, is entwined with that. You know, in, in a very kind of insidious way, I think, because it's saying like, well, you are born into this caste because of your 
previous life previous karma, karma. But you can do good deeds in this life to improve your karma, no? In your next life, not in this one. Right. That's what I'm saying. But th- So that's why— You're still fucked now. And if you, if, if you happen to be wrong about rebirth, then you're just screwed. <laughs> well, I mean, but yeah. that would indicate then also that, that people who have— maybe they were born into a higher caste, there would be more incentive if they believe in karma to, like— Okay, well, if they're such jerks, then you know they they all, they want to be like kind and giving too, because then their karma will. It's possible to be kind to somebody without um, allowing them to leave that particular caste, you know. Oh yeah. So they, I mean, it's a completely different social dynamic than we oh, have okay. here. Yeah, that's but true. It's similar to like if you see a homeless person, right? Yeah. Now, if you would you invite them into your home? Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's a good question. I mean. I mean, I don't, I, I have compassion I mean, for homeless people, but I don't, when I see yeah. the same beggar on the same corner every day, I don't say, hey, come live on my couch. Right. You know? Yeah. Is so, that I mean, good for him or is it good for you? No, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't do that. And did you check with me? No, I mean, I probably wouldn't do that. I'm just saying, you know, like I, I was thinking about like, oh yeah, there was this traveling French guy once uh, who, you know, was... Not he just, but that's different because he was one of those. Because he was French and he was charming and he no, was one of and, us and but he was a um, what do you call him a? Well, that you is know, he was a um, oh, trimigrant. I guess you could oh, yeah, you yeah, call yeah. them trimigrants, right? Mm-hmm. So he was here, but he didn't really have a place to yeah to stay. But he had his shit like, together. Yeah, he 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 was a little more, you know. Um, well, see, we have a, that privilege kind of in the a young West vagabond, to say, okay, kind here's of a homeless person uh, has their shit together. Yeah, a young— In um, India, it's not like that. You don't, you don't get to be both, you know? Oh, okay. That's what was so disillusioning to me, and that, and that really just absolutely disillusioned my, my visions of what Hinduism, I thought, was. Yeah, you know? interesting. Um, and, I mean, to this day, I certainly would never consider myself a Hindu, even though I play Hindustani music and everything. You know? How long were you there? Uh, for about a year. Oh, well, that's yeah. pretty intense. Like two six-month visas. So. Okay. And you were where mainly? You were in Calcutta? Uh, Calcutta, Darjeeling, Sikkim, Bodh Gaya, okay. uh, Varanasi. I've never been to India, so these and places. Pushkar, and And what was your favorite ones. place? What did you really like? For a big city, it? Calcutta. Calcutta, okay. Although Varanasi is an amazing place, too. It's like one of the oldest cities like mm-hmm. living. And that's like where they do all that stuff with the dead. And yeah, the river. The, the river. The, the, like people bring their ashes of their loved ones there, like from all over wow. to throw them into the river there. And if you're like considered like a holy person, they throw your body into the river. They don't even burn you. Wow. So you can see like like bodies floating down the river. Like That must have been weird to just see like bodies floating down the river. Yeah. And you smell the bodies burning, you know? And like they just they pile up like like stacks of wood, like kinda like Jenga, and then they throw the body on top and they light it on fire. And so if you happen to be like living, you know, downwind of where the funeral pyres are. You, it smells like, like chicken barbecuing, you know? Ew. Wow. It's not an unpleasant smell. That's creepy. Yeah. Are you vegetarian? No. I was when I moved to India, and, uh, and I stopped while I was in India. You stopped while in India? While in India, yeah, ironically. Because I was, is um, odd. I spent a lot of time up in, like, Kolkata, which is you know, almost like a uh, majority Muslim. And then I spent a lot of time in, uh, in the uh, Darjeeling area, which is uh, mostly Buddhist, which but they do eat meat. So um, you know, there was just times where I was like a guest in someone's home, and they would like make this spread and with goat and everything else. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Um, that must have been quite existential to just like see all this death right 
It's yeah. really, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's kind of a magical city because people go there to die, but like not in a bad way. It's like, because they, according to the Hindu beliefs, is like you basically, if you manage to die in Varanasi and get your ashes spread there, then you're like totally liberated. It's like you won. <laughs> and so like people go there, like they're elderly. If they have the means to, they'll go there just to die. Just Varanasi. So could, yeah. So if I were going to go to like, one place in India, where do you think would be the place to go? It depends on what your interest is. You know, like I loved Varanasi because of the history there. And like that, you know, yeah. it's sort of the, one of the most holy cities of India. That and sounds like, interesting. Very world famous with the Ganga River there. Yeah. Um, but and there's it, also Bodh Gaya, which is really cool. It's like where the Buddha sat under the tree to gain enlightenment. And they, they okay. have like, a, I think it's like the fifth generation of trees now that they keep like taking like new sprouts and like this giant tree that the, you can sit right where the Buddha sat oh, wow. under the Bodhi tree. Did you? And there's a big giant temple there. there. You sat there? Amazing. I really liked Bodh Gaya a lot. And it's crazy because it's this giant temple that's like, you know, like 40 stories tall. And, you know, it's like this, the width of a, a half a football field or something. And, uh, and where the tree is, there's like the throne, like where the Buddha sat is like, click, like closed off from the public. But then, people gather on one side or the other of this throne. And like on one side is where people are all doing their like outward, like prostrations, you know, and like, uh, like out loud prayers and physical emotions and doing all this kind of worship. And then you go to the other side of the tree, it's everyone just sitting in like silent meditation. And it's just, you know, like this, this calm, like I've never seen anywhere. And in India where you have millions and billions of people. And then to just suddenly just, just to see the most incredible piece you've ever seen. It's, did you feel like different when you sat under the tree or did you feel? Oh, it was absolutely magical. I didn't want to leave that place. It felt like there. psychedelic or just like it felt you changed state when you sat under yes, the tree. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. From the people there, the calmness, um, you know, um, I, I didn't, I wasn't drawn so much to on the other side where people were like saying prayers and doing like prostrate, physical right. prostrations and things like that's not really my, my way of worship or what have you, but but to just to just to sit there and feel the history of that place and look at the tree and nice. it's quite magical. And then the, the leaves are considered very holy. And so there's like kids that go around there trying to sell you like when a leaf falls off that tree because the branches are too high for you to grab them. Yeah. But when one falls, mm-hmm. it's like the kids grab them. And there's other Bodhi trees, so they'll send you, they'll sell you like fake, you know, like they say, oh, this uh. is from the Bodhi tree, but it's actually from this other Bodhi <laughs> from tree. From a yeah. Bodhi tree. Yeah. yeah, like counterfeit Bodhi leaves and stuff. <laughs> hey, um, uh, I got a question about this. Like I always wondered... You know how they had like Buddha statues? And there's like two types. They got the skinny Buddha mm. and the fat Buddha. I never saw a fat Buddha. I think it's more of a China Buddhas? thing. Is it a China thing? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's like the jolly Buddha is very much yeah, I think, yeah, a yeah. Chinese thing. Because that's supposed to mean like you're well fed, you're you know, you're bountiful, you're rich, you can afford to eat all because the food. Because I always thought there was like a before and after enlightenment, and mm-hmm. the before <laughs> was the skinny and the after was the fat. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense, but I think it's just supposed to be like a sort of a good luck charm of like. Yeah, yeah, I never went. For, I never went for the fat Buddha. Yeah. Well, and, and in Hinduism too, it's a sign of uh, sort of respect that uh, you know, like, like if you're a, a businessman and you're fat, it means you're doing well because you can afford to eat. So, like, sure, it's a little different. Like in the U.S., we look at fat people, you know, as, not as we don't esteem them per se. Uh, and in India, it is very much like a sort of a, a status symbol to have a little extra belly for men and women. Yeah. It's weird because actually in this country, I feel like obesity is actually a problem for lower classes because of the fact that 
you know, the food, it's, you know, a lot of times, I mean, the wealth, the extremely wealthy people are going to be eating well, which right. means they're going to be eating better quality food, probably yes. organic, Poor probably, eating at, at, probably at less like crappy Jack in the box right. or 7-Eleven. I mean, you know, that's, these days it seems to be that way. And, and that. Rather tragic too. That, yeah, like it it's is. More expensive. You know I mean? Like it, I don't, I don't think it should be cheaper to eat crap. You know? No, fuck. No, no way. I think it's a crime what what passes for food in a lot in a lot of supermarkets in this country. Like you walk into the supermarket, it's like, what is this? This is this is food. Oh, What's God, the I nutritional know. value of this On crap? The, when, you know, when I was tour manager for Chris Cotton, and we did like two major um, like nationwide tours, and I was vegetarian at the time mostly. Um, I had just come back from India for, on one of those tours that, um, I still considered myself more or less vegetarian. And like, we, you know, we, when you're on the road, like we did like a 40 day tour where we'd played like 35 shows in 40 days or something. So you're just like constantly in the next city and you're like hitting convenience stores and just gas stations on the road. And, and I would, I'd walk in there and like nothing here registers as food to me, Yeah, you know? And like a lot of the other band members, they were like cool with it. And, and I would watch what they get like, Oh, corn nuts. That's reasonably healthy. Yeah. Corn like, nuts. Corn nuts. Uh, healthy foods. Beef jerky. Okay. There's some actual sustenance in there, you know, like compared to like Pringles or something, you know. But but yeah, it's just unfortunately that's how a lot of people that's all they eat, you know. But but partly because that's all that is there accessible or they can afford or that's right. you know, it's like I mean, if you I ever live know. in the middle, like in the heartland of the US, you'll see like huge stretches where you might live in a town where there's like one general store, right. and that's basically oh, all you got there. And it's like rough. Corn yeah. dogs it's like and shit. White bread and yeah. processed food. I mean, yeah. maybe you could get a can of beans and oh, you could definitely get a can of beans, and that would be reasonably, I mm-hmm. guess, healthy or like some vegetables. But it's like there's just a lot of processed food, and I think, I think it's also the culture. I mean, I don't know. Anyways, I think it's sad. Yeah, mainly that there's a lot of obesity in our country and i yeah you don't have to leave the country to be disillusioned you can be disillusioned right here <laughs> right here Absolutely. oh yeah oh, and, you know, first place when people ask me like oh where you know you've traveled a lot like what's your you know what it was one of the like weirdest places you've been or like dude travel in the u.s there's some crazy fucking places yeah. right here you know like what like a it? lot i mean every you, you go to little states and you know just from one town to the next it could be so different you know and Especially if you grew up on one of the coasts, it can be like some serious culture shock, you know? What was that George Carlin quote about like, um, you know, this world is a madhouse or whatever. And if you live in the U.S., you got, we got front row seats or something. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Anyway, it was a good quote about like just the craziness of this life on this planet. And Carlin was on the next level when it comes to comedians. Yeah. I remember he, um, you know, it, I was exposed to him when I was pretty young and it was like the 70s. And his, his, his style of comedy transformed quite a bit over the years. In the beginning, he was, was like really a lot of like kind of wordplay and like a little, little more surface level. As he got older, he got deeper and deeper. And I think as he got success and he realized now he has a voice that he can say whatever the fuck he wants, he, he started to do that. But, um, but I remember just mm-hmm. being young and just like just being amazed at his wit like 
he had like uh, it was like a bunch of phrases that you never hear. It's like one of his bits. Oh yeah, and he just says all these random like, "Hand me that piano." <laughs> <laughs> like, just all these things you'll never hear and it's like yeah there's nothing super deep going on but it's just fucking funny you know it's like, funny I liked his um airplane like the his um airplane bit I don't know which one's that oh it's just fuck like, you guys I'm getting in the plane oh yeah like <laughs> on the plane can you please step on the plane like no. I don't remember that one <laughs> I, I don't know I just cause I have a hard time flying I I sometimes I get I'm a little bit I get nausea a lot on planes and it's just I do not enjoy flying so it was particularly funny for me to listen to his you and me both I that was the absolute hardest part of going to India was being on a plane for I mean over 20 one flight you're on a plane for like about 20 hours wow that is a long flight. and then you stop over for a few hours and then you got to go for another five or six hours you know wow and it's it just it's just like a two days of hell for me because yeah. I hate, I'm a little bit claustrophobic. I don't like places where it's all like prefab yeah. air and like, you know. I don't think I could do it. 20 hours on a plane. Yeah. I like the most I've done is like, I don't know, probably less than 10 because I just, I've done a nonstop from, you know, the East Coast to California back. Or oh, yeah. wait, I guess it's, yeah, it's the East Coast to California would be longer flight. So that's, but yeah. Um, because the earth is spinning. Yeah, you go, it's longer yeah, when yeah. you're going west. But um, Hopefully there's no flat earthers listening to that. <laughs> Explain <laughs> oh, that God. one, flat earther. Yeah. Why does it take longer <laughs> to go that way? <laughs> uh, oh, man. Um, so where, uh, where, where were we? Oh, well, so we're talking wanted, about India. I would, yeah, and, I, and, and then really interesting. Yeah, I mean, God, there's so many, I, I don't even know where to start, like so many just cool, amazing little experiences I had in India, you know. Um, I remember when I was uh, in Pushkar, and it's, they have the world's largest gathering of people. Um, not when I was there, but they have the camel fair. And mm-hmm. it's, Pushkar's like right on the border with Pakistan and like in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. Um, the Rajasthan is, is the state. And they, uh, they, like once a year, they have this the camel fair. I've heard about people this. People come and they trade camel and it's like, it's, it's like humongous. Big like, money. M- like um, over a million people show up. And it's this little tiny sleepy village. And then during the camel fair, they just create a whole tent city around it, you know, like ma- massive like structures of tents to accommodate for like millions of people. It's like Burning Man for camels. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it, um, so, to, you know, just to see that town, uh, it was suggested to me as a cool place to check out. And I went there. And then I bumped into people from the ridge there when I was there. Are you serious? <laughs> <Yeah>. What? <laughs> and it was like, you know, like, uh, like Fanafi Allah, they're uh, the local like Sufi band. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. And uh, they, were, they were like kicking it in the town, you know, like, but That's I ran into my, my old weed dealer that I knew from, <laughs> from Santa Rosa area. And, wow. And I was just walking on, like bumped into her on the streets of Pushkar. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, you should come over to the hotel. And I go there and then there's like, a, like Fanafi Allah's hanging out there. And <laughs> they were playing this like, the game of cards. It's like it's like a weed. It's like this like card game where you're like, yeah, like you're like a weed dealer, and it's like, <laughs> oh, I just busted you on the cops, and like oh, there's like this weird like game they're playing, and, and it was that kind of shattered my image too. I'm like, oh, Fonafi Allah, they're these like totally like super like shanty musicians, you know, and they're just sitting around like smoking weed and playing cards and just, like hanging out like off season, you know, like right, right, right. You know, there's an on stage persona and off stage mm-hmm. persona. 
How, uh, so how did how did our dinner my um, chana masala compared to the chana mas and like an, be honest? Oh, that's good because it's not so ridiculously sweet. Like oh, so get, theirs was theirs was yeah. When you pretty much everywhere you go in India, that chai is like super like twice as sugary as that one. You know? No, no, no. But I mean the chana masala. Oh, the chana masala. Sorry, we I, had I heard the chai for some reason. No, the I'm chana sorry. Masala was I probably fantastic. did say chai. So no, the chana masala. Yeah. Um. In but how was it in India and how was the food there? I'm sure it was. Oh, it's good and it's pretty well, amazing. everywhere is a little different, you know. Yeah. And um and there's so many people in India. So you like if you're in somewhere like Varanasi or Calcutta where there's like a million people around you, or a few million people, like you can just walk to a next neighborhood and then there's like a whole another kind of cuisine over here. You oh, know? interesting. So you like you get used to this block and then yeah. you go over here and now it's like a whole other you know. Um, so so many sometimes people. it's real spicy. Sometimes it's really salty. Some yeah. some people like the seafood. Okay, like there's it's just like there's no one thing about India. You know, it's like yeah. India is everything. It's interesting. Like, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, I, a, it's a assault on the senses. How how varied it is. Yeah, like, I'm I'm sort of I'm afraid to go there, but I think I feel like it's something I should experience before I die. You know, it's like it seems like a really amazing. Life changing experience it's, to go experience. It's a magical place because it's very different from our culture. It's very. It's, it is. I've never. I mean, I really haven't traveled to that many places that are, that are so drastically different from <laughs> yeah, the U.S. Should, I've been to France. I've go. been, you know, I've been it's to Paris. One of I've the been most to different England. You know, like t- t- compared to our Western culture as we know it, like it doesn't get much more different than that. Especially for a society that you can actually interact with because yeah. they speak English well there. You know, pretty much every town I went to, even in like the most poorest areas, mm-hmm. there was always someone around that knew how to speak English. And so you can, and like, like in Calcutta, there's like some very nice universities and things there. So mm-hmm. I could talk to people who have better English than I do. Like they're very well read and educated. And so I could have like really intellectual conversations with people, you know, and then learn so much about their culture and like, why do they think the way they do? And why, how are the, how are we different and all these kind of mm-hmm. things, you know? I've been to Ireland too. So that's, I've been to Ireland. Yeah, that's just like being in California, but you're like more drunk and you eat potatoes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's no. I mean, it, it I is, just dismissed all of Irish people <laughs> just like that, didn't I? Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful. They're in the uh, Irish cast. Green. I would love Lots to go there. I, I, I have some Irish roots, and uh, I have Irish roots. I've never too. are they potato? I've yeah. barely been to Europe at all. Like, that's. But it's not really on my bucket list. I'm like, if yeah. you know, if, with the limited amount of time I have left in life, so many places I want to see, Europe is not anywhere near the top of the list. And because like, I feel like it, I've already kind of been inundated with Western culture. Yeah, at this point, right. You know? So, so what what would you be your your list of places you really want? Well, to I want to go back to India. India, yeah. Um, I haven't really got to explore South America too much. Um, That's another one for me. I'd like to. And also like Indonesia and like that sort of the whole the rest of South Asia and Southeast Asia. Hmm. A lot of really cool stuff down there, like Cambodia, mm-hmm. Vietnam. All of that. Um, I'd like to go to China, check that out. He's been to China, studied oh, yeah. in China, of course. Yeah, I was offered a job there a, a little while back, and uh, and I was really close. Like right before I moved here, about ten years ago, I was I couldn't afford to live in the Bay Area anymore, and I kind of wound up here. But at the time, I didn't have any roots holding me anywhere, and uh, was offered a job, just like an English speaking job or whatever over there, and. Um, and I was really close to taking it because well. I, I had some good recommendations. There's a, a, a city called Shaman, and um, it's it's one of the greenest cities in the world. Really, like they um, they have this all this urban planning. So like like every other mile of the city is just like these like green patches, hmm. and, uh, cool. and so it's I mean it's, it's quite um, progressive, you know. 
And it's funny because, you know, we think of China as like the smoke and the uh, overpopulation yeah. and stuff. And this is like the exact opposite. It's like. Wait, it's called shaman? Shaman, yeah. Sha, X-A-I. Oh, oh, I thought yeah. you said shaman. Like it, That's how it's pronounced, <laughs> more or less. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it just right, but it's in that neighborhood, yeah. Shaman. I want to go to shaman. Green city. So that's on my list. And it's a, particularly that city, I want to see that because it's a very progressive. Cool. You know, they're, they're into urban planning in a way that's like beneficial for everybody, you know. It's like yeah, we, we help better, the trees out, should, the trees help us out, you know. We, could, we should learn from them. Oh, it's this big, like, um anti-desertification program they got going on in China these days where they're planting all of these um, planting it's like a whole big huge movement to like stop the desertification because deserts are growing and it's a big problem like if we could stop mm. that it's a good thing but yeah a lot of progressive central planning happening from China I mean I guess in a way they're kind of forced to right it's like how how long is it sustainable just to have like pure capitalism or whatever? You know, it's like at some point you have to rein it in and say what's what's sustainable. You know? well, these are, these smart, are big questions that the world's facing, right? Yeah, mm. and they're sort of the canary in the coal mine because there's you know it's a lot of people and uh, yeah. a big economic force that we're all dependent on, frankly. You know, and propaganda—you don't even know what's real anymore, right? It's so hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, then I'd love to go check out North Korea. It'd be a little difficult, but oh, when you do, let us know behind the curtain. And, yeah, 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 yeah. I hear it's yeah. great, and I hear it's like they're bug eaters. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we're not going to get any information that's not propaganda from either their side of the propaganda or ours. Uh-huh. Right? Everything is filtered through pure propaganda of what we know about North Korea. Oh. That's why I think it would be cool to go there just to see like what it, what's see really for, going firsthand. On. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I wanted to also go back to this. Is, this is just kind of a weird anecdote because um, you asked if I studied music in India, and I, you know, I studied in San Rafael at the right. Al Akbar College. And uh, in those days, I was a big stoner. Like I don't really smoke cannabis nearly as much as I used to, but I, I was just very habitual, like all day user. You know, like just stoned from morning to night. And and I realized quickly, like as challenging as the sitar is to play, like I can't be stoned and like play well. And so um, I, you know, sort of made a rule for myself, which is a sort of also kind of an unwritten rule in, in class that you don't come to class stoned, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, me being the huge stoner that it was, sometimes I would forget that it was class day and I'd be like fucking baked and I have to go to class. Oh man. So I felt bad. It really felt bad. Like I, you know, I'm trying to respect that. <laughs> and I show up to class and I'm, you know, I'm just baked and I'm like <laughs> playing horribly you know, and it's a class of like, it's like Ali Akbar Khan is like on this little like lower stage and there's like 30 or 40 of us students like surrounding him and we're all, and he just, you know, he plays a few bars and then we repeat it back and he's just teaching us like little bits of the ragas each, mm-hmm. each day. And uh, and I'm just flailing, you know, it just, and it sound, I know it sounds bad and I'm a total newbie at that school. It was like my very first semester there and whatnot. And, um, and it's very intimidating, you know, because it's mm-hmm. going to this like, generations of garanas and then all these like really like kind of shantier than thou hippies that are like part of that scene and like you just feel like you're not part of that cool kids and, yeah you know so i was just so like really i didn't know anyone there and and, and i'm just baking i'm like god this sucks i suck and then he stops and looks back at me and he says what are you doing <laughs> i mean he just shamed the hell out of me and i was like uh, I, what do you say to that? I was like, uh, I don't know what, you know, I just probably just put my head down in shame and, 
And he just kind of shook his head and kept going. And I was like, oh. I knew there was a reason I don't go to class stoned, you know? Like, he, that did you ever go to class stoned after that again? One time again, I accidentally did. Oh. And, uh, oh. It was a similar thing. We're like, oh, Friday, it was class day. So I'm like, okay, I'll one-up him because I, I'm like, I, I figured out like a little cheat code here. I'll go in, but I, I'll tell him I broke a string on my instrument. I don't have my instrument with me. So I'm just going to sing and I'm just going to like absorb and, and I'll, you know, sing the parts. Right. But I didn't say that. I just was in there like just doing it and everyone's like playing along and I'm just singing the parts. Oh gosh. And again, he, about halfway through class, he stops and he's like, hey, what the, where's your instrument, dude? What's going on here? <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, uh, I broke a string. I did, I don't have my instrument with me today. So I figured I will just do vocally. And he's like, what? He's like, we have strings here. <laughs> you know, this is, this is all the offer college. Like, if you want anywhere in the world to get the best sitar strings, it's right where I'm standing. And but somehow I thought it was, oh, I was going to outsmart him. Oh, I don't have the string. <laughs> so didn't. once again, he just shamed the fuck yeah. out of me. He didn't think, oh yeah, this guy's totally stoned. Oh, I think he saw right through he my saw charade. Right through that, yeah. Because he just, yeah. That's the thing about all the like He's he was he you had know. this intuition about him, you know. I yeah. think that's why he was considered one of the greats. It's like you can be technically skilled all day long, you know, but to have that, you know, there's a certain something that comes from like seeing right into a person's soul or into the soul of the raga and to like feel yeah. it. And that's something that I always like, I'm not super technically skilled. I'll never be like the fastest player, the most technically proficient. Mm-hmm. And so to compensate for that, I, I try to really feel the raga, you know, and to really be able to express the heart of it, even if I can't play circles around some of these other people, you know. I, uh, yeah. Could you explain what a raga is? Yeah, but can I first oh, yeah. in, interrupt because I was going to say something about the one time I tried to play an instrument while I was stoned. And this is, I, I've only been stoned very rarely in my life, but this was like, I was stoned. <laughs> like really, I ate some brownies oh, yeah. that I made, and I made them far too potent. And then I was like, <sighs> I thought I was gonna die. Actually, I was like, Oh my god, I have to call nine one one. Like, I <laughs> don't call nine one one. Don't do it. You know, I had to be talked out of. And then, but anyways, I, I, <laughs> I yeah, this is actually I was screaming and puking. This was after this was after the screaming and puking. This is, um, but I um, in the bathroom, you know. I was, mm-hmm. And then then I realized it was going to be okay. I drank some water, but but I was trying to play guitar and and you know, I was like just playing this one chord like over and over <laughs> again and like sort of like, am I here oh or God. am I not here? Like and you know, I just I don't know. I I don't like being stoned. Actually, I'm not really that. I, I, you were kind of feeling that existential dread of like, yeah. What do I do besides this chord or something? Yeah, it was just I. I couldn't. I was. Do like, I have anything more to offer than this? It was like, what is this chord? What am I? Yeah. Who am I? Oh like, man, am I, I have I a story like here? that. Like my first paid gig on the sitar. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was living in Portland at the time, and uh, oh, I did. I did. I had one. Like when I started going to the Ali Akbar College, it was um, Technically, because I got offered a paid gig to play at um, some Indian people's wedding in Mountain View. Like some people saw me busking on the street, they're Indian couple, and they um, they said, hey, would you like to play at our wedding? And I said, well, I'm not, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just like kind of fucking around on this sitar. And they're like, no, we like your music. Like we heard you play, like we want you to, like we'll pay you. And I was like, and I just felt like I, I can't in good conscience like go play at an Indian wedding unless I get like some training. 
So I went, I got like a crash course at the Ali Akbar College. I went to like one of the like senior students there. His name's James Pomerantz. And I said, I need you to teach me everything that you can in two hours about Raga so I can play this wedding next <laughs> week. And he like gave me a crash course. And, um, but, uh, but anyway, when I was living in Portland several years later, and the first time I was really offered a paid gig, mm-hmm. this girl was like, hey, we're going to have this party. You know, it's like a house party. And like, you know, I'll pay you a hundred bucks to come play. And so we get there and uh, getting ready to kind of set up. And uh, she's going around and like giving everybody these little little treats. And, uh, and then she goes, gives me one. And I'm like, oh, what is it? No. She's like, oh, it's just some mushrooms. I was like, oh, I better not because I'm going to be performing. Like, I don't think she's like, she's like, oh, no, everyone's tripping at the party. It's like a trick party. <laughs> just take it. She's like, it's not too strong. No. You know? And I was like, no. I was like, you know, I'm like, I'm telling you, like, I can't, I don't think I'm going to be able to perform properly on it. She's like, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> and she was the one paying me. So I'm like, okay. So I took it. And then, like, I kind of forgot that I'd eaten it, you know, like, like a half an hour, an hour goes by and I'm starting to feel really funny, you know. <laughs> I'm looking around. I didn't really know anyone at that party. And, and, uh, so I'm just starting <laughs> to get that weird sort of, you know, angsty coming up on psychedelics feeling. And, uh, and she comes over to me and she's like, hey, and she's like, and I'm like, what? And she's like, you want to play now? And I was like, oh, fuck. I got to go play now. And I, so I was like, oh. I'm like, I don't want to, but okay. You already paid me. Whatever. So I get up there and I just start tuning, you know? And I'm like, and I was already pre-tuned, but I was like, I was basically stalling because I didn't yeah. know what, what to play. So I was just kind of droning, like playing one chord and, yeah, I was like droning, which sounds cool on a sitar, you know. When you're on mushrooms, especially. And, but it was like at the same right. time, like everybody at that party's staring at me, you know, because <laughs> I'm like on stage. I mean, it was on a stage, I was sitting on the same carpet as them, but it was like I was the entertainment. So, you know, you're coming up on mushrooms and everybody's just staring at you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and you're like, oh, ah. okay. And then, so I just kept just strumming, and I had like my little like samples and stuff. I was like just doing little drones. And just and just droning on the sitar and like my whole set, like I barely paid like four notes. I played for an hour, but like every now and then I'd be like, I'd be like meow 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 meow, and just the, those two notes that'll hold did they them like off it? for about half an I mean, hour. Did they- because yeah. they were I, all tripping. I was just too high, and I was like, I, would, I can't, you know. They were all tripping too, so hopefully they, they thought it was great. Everyone was like, that was amazing, you know. Like, <laughs> That's dude, awesome. You should hear me when I can actually play that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that what the lesson is from this is that really I think there is a quality to being able to to be sober and really present when you're playing an instrument. Because the thing is, if you, I don't think drugs and music, I mean, it depends. I don't know if you played. What do you think about being on and being present at the same time? If you can pull it off, then great. That's but I the mean, thing. Yeah, That's I think, the place to get to. I think that, you know? you know, pot, alcohol, maybe not mushroom. I don't know. What? I haven't I mean, think really... about the, think of all the Jimi Hendrixes and the Jim Morrisons of the world that tried exactly. to walk that line and I'm failed. I'm just saying I don't think alcohol you know, and People think greater about than me tried and failed. Really? What? Well, for me, I, I wouldn't... Are you, you're saying that pot and psychedelics and music don't No, I'm mix. saying alcohol and pot. I mean, psychedelics may be different. Alcohol and psychedelics I don't know. and music don't No, I'm saying, I think psychedelics I think are different. I think you need to listen to some music. I think psychedelics are <laughs> well, different. Well, it might be inspired by psychedelics, but it's, it's difficult to perform on them. Yeah. But I, um, I think did you hear that, the story about like Woodstock and Santana and the Grateful yeah, Dead? Yeah. And, and, okay. You know, just and, like you know, tripping and, balls, Yeah, and psychedelics are different, too. Yeah, so that's what you we're talking about. Psychedelics and music. I'm not talking about pot or alcohol. No, we're talking no, we, about psychedelics. We, but we were talking about, yeah, I know. We were talking about mushrooms just now. And I think that... Yeah, yeah. That's definitely involved with music. Yeah, I did like, that painting over there on mushrooms. Kind of like it. I have a hard but, time doing visual arts actually. on psychedelics as well. 
I did that painting on, on mushrooms. But um, I get intimidated by the blank page when I'm high, you know? I think, no, I think that, that a lot of times, you know, it depends, but sometimes it can be very... Um, I think it takes a sound Creative mind. enhancing. I, I, I think Enhancing be, creativity. Yeah. You know, it, and certainly... Um, it, I think you have to like, I think you have to have overcome the demons at that point. Because if you're dealing yeah. with the demons, then it's hard to deal with the with the music, right? Right. But if you get through all of that, and you're you like, got to get pushed past the anxiety of the trip, yeah, 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 and yeah. like get into Which it. Is, that's sort of the beauty of psychedelics is like you confront all that, and then you get you get past it, and, and that's then you're sort yeah. of that moment, aha and then you're moment like, yeah. where it's amazing, yeah. And then I think it like really but then opens you can up. play the music. You know, it's hard to time that, like you you know, it's not like well, if you're if you're stuck in your head, then it's going to be a problem. Or if you're just you know you're expected to go on stage at seven thirty p.m. And you're starting to come up, and you're like, okay, I got some demons to deal with first, you know? It's like, well, can you, you can't just tell the demons to hang on a second. You know, well, when the, when the harmonica gets really super bendy, <laughs> you hang I mean, on. Hopefully, and you, you can ride just that. get in that pocket <laughs> and, you and just like, go. you know, yeah. I've, I've that's what's nice about a band there. too. Yeah. I've been there like on stage, where um, not on psychedelics, but just tour. Like I feel like I'm maybe a little bit too buzzed to, to really play well, and then you just got to kind of power through that, and then get to the next level where it's you're just giving more of your spirit, you know, and it's yeah. like, it's, it's, it's a fine line. Though. Like I said, like, I think that's where practice comes in. You know, if you practice, if you know your instrument, then you can enjoy the journey. Yeah. And, you know, don't get too far out on head of your skis, as they say. And I think that can be the problem if you're too far off on your, it's, too far in front of your yeah. skis. Well, also it's just amazing. Like how many musicians, now that I think about it, have died of drug overdoses and like, I say that. Yeah, but they weren't mu- playing music at the time, were they? No, I mean, I'm just saying like music and drugs. I say that, <laughs> but I'm saying like so many musicians. So you you're know, saying Elvis shouldn't have taken a shit. He should have went on stage and maybe he would have died. Slide on. Maybe those banana sandwiches. Was it the banana or the peanut butter? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> the bacon. Ew. Ew. Ew, ew. The no, I mean, loaf? Is that and, really and psychedelics <laughs> changed music for sure. I mean, look at oh, the, yes. the Beatles after they. Yeah. You know, tripped on LSD. It was yeah. like totally different. Sound, My mom right? was like, I, you know, I, I got into the psychedelics at a young age, and uh, like I was, I was like dealing LSD when I was fourteen years old. What? Oh my God. Or fifteen, about fifteen. That Holy was you. fuck! Where? And uh, but my mom, like, she had some Beatles records and stuff, and uh, the newest one she had was Rubber Soul, which is like right when they first started to yeah, toke, and they the like Dr. met Dr. Bob Roberts. Dylan, but they hadn't quite fully dove into the psychedelia yet. That was just kind of like they're like tiptoeing into it. And I was like, so mom, like, you like the Beatles, huh? And she's like, yeah, but only their old stuff. Like, I don't like their weird stuff. <laughs> you know, because she's like more into just like the doo-wop-y stuff. She's straight. And, yeah. and, I was, and I'm like, I was like mom, oh, mom here, you don't know what you're Mom, missing. here, like, try a little bit of this. The album is fucking brilliant, you know? It's <laughs> like, mom, try a little bit of this. And yeah, you'll right? see what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, it's, I have a really pretty good relationship with my mom now, much yeah. better than I did when I was a kid. And sometimes I think about like, it would be kind of cool to like trip with my mom. Like, I feel she's open-minded enough now that, could maybe be possible, you know? Has she ever tripped? Not that I know of. She's oh. really straight. Yeah. Did you hear that, Mrs. Siva? You're invited. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt she's listening to this podcast, but... Oh, okay. Well, if you are, you're invited to our next LSD art party. You know, they, uh, I heard some uh, advice from an author one time. He says, don't ask your family to read your book. <laughs> no. Like, God, why? I'd be afraid. Because they don't want to because they're afraid to tell you if it sucks. Oh. Oh. You know? And it's like, and they know you so well. It's like, it's just, it's just like a, it's like a little yeah, uncomfortable, weird yeah, area. No, don't do that. Now, I've, most of my family owns my book. I have not heard one peep of feedback. 
So I don't know if they read it. I don't know if they haven't read it. I don't know if they read it and they hated it and they didn't say anything. Perfect. And I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> That's you know? a good place for it. I'm like, here, here's the book. Do with it what you want. I don't think any of my family even knows I play music. Yeah. yeah. That's not true. I think they know I play, but I don't think they've heard they my do. music. They never heard my album. They did. They ignored us. Well, no. <laughs> they we, we played for them and they... No, oh, they know. They're not listening. <laughs> like, That's not guys. my target audience. No, I know. Um, it's weird because I, I grew up in a musical family. It's one thing that I'm I'm grateful for about my family. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I'm grateful for a couple of things, but but the fact that I grew two. up in a exactly <laughs> two. <laughs> I grew up in a, a musical family, and so like cool. you know, Justin and I like went over to Maine, where I'm from, and and we like played for them, and oh, they sweet. listened. They cried. And cool. They cr- oh, well, some people. My sister cried. Um. And and they were really appreciative. They said, "You guys yeah. are really good." Uh. My mom actually watched the video of us playing um, at the Sacred Higher Ground Muse. Like mm. the, anyway, she it was that just the one from a couple weeks ago. Yeah, oh, cool. and she watched it and she goes, "That's a really good song." And Justin had written that song, and she goes, "You guys could be famous." Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh wow, mom, thanks. <laughs> no, that um, makes me want to give my mom props because I said, yeah. you know, she's straight and all this, but um, like I said, she's gotten more open-minded cool over the years and uh when i did my first trip to india um i threw a bon voyage gig and uh, so i put this gig together it was like sort of like my like all-star band of all like my best friends and favorite musicians in the bay area and uh and we did this show just as my bon voyage i was going to be gone for a year and uh and my mom like i i don't know if i invited her on facebook now i don't think it was she probably was on Facebook, yeah, but she got wind of the fact that I was doing this concert and she organized the whole family and they all came like from Whoa, all wow. over California. What? I was cool. in Mountain View and like, the, like my mom lived in like, in like, like Auburn, Roseville. And right. so she came like you know, two, three hours away wow. and, and brought like all of my family, like my brothers were all there. It was like, it was like a so reunion cool. and they came to my gig and it was like, wow, you know? And they really listened, and it was. It felt so special. Like that's the best gift they could give me. That's just super like, cool. Hey, we're gonna support you, and nice. like you're doing. And you know, I mean, India really did change me. Mm-hmm. Like, and and I, I think they they sensed that that was like a really big deal for me going there. Yeah, I wasn't going there as a, as a student, but as like, just I wanted to know more about where it all came from, and like right. to experience something more. You know, and uh, I mean, it really. I remember like some of my friends when I came back. They're like, "You're different." Yeah, I like bet. there's just something different about you since you came back from India, and like you they couldn't quite describe what it was. But you spent a year in India, exactly. You know, but yeah, I mean, if you spend a year in India, it's. Bound I mean, I do remember being like certain impact. aspects of India that I was really depressed when I came back to the states because it was like, like one time I was like, um, my ex-wife. That it was like we we had like a, a wedding in India. I was like mm-hmm. traveling with uh, my girlfriend uh, for six months of that time, and. uh we had like a, a wedding ceremony while we were in India and um, she, uh, fuck, I forgot, I lost my train of thought there. What was it? She had a, you had a wedding. Um, yeah, but that's not what I was, what I was talking about. Um, Just that there were, there was changes. An, you were different yeah, when you got back. the changes and that there were some aspects that were depressed. Like, I don't know that you found. Oh yeah. So, um, so we were in Varanasi and we were like having an argument and uh, 
And like she stormed off. And like we we split up for a while when we were in, in we split up twice in India. Like where we like went to different <laughs> cities and then came back together. Like just take a little break and come back together and stuff. So we were in Varanasi and we were like in the middle of like one of our breakups. Mm-hmm. And I was just like really distraught. And like she like went running off, you know. And I was I went walked into the hotel lobby and I was like kind of in tears. And the the manager of the hotel saw me and he was like, "Dear, what's wrong?" He's like, and he like sits me down on the bench and to talk to me. He's like, and I remember he called me dear, you know, and I'm like. I've never heard a man Aww. call me deer before. He's like, let's talk about this deer. Like, what's going on with you? And it was like, but it was just like this, such a genuine like um, compassion. I love he that. saw me hurting and like, you I know, and it was that. just totally natural for him to be like, oh, somebody's hurting. You drop everything and like be there for this person. Oh, wow. And then, and then I came back to the States. They don't do that. Never, you go, you start crying in a, in a bar over someone, they're just going to make fun of you, you know? It's like. Bro, you oh. have something in your eye. Yeah. Like it's not, you just don't. You know, they wouldn't sit down and say, "Oh dear." Yeah, dear. What's dear, up? what's yeah. up? <laughs> Maybe a really good bartender That's might. That's so treat you nice. That way, but. <laughs> but he would have not. You're getting paid to. Have you paid that forward? I hope so. You ever call a person dear? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's weird. It's because here it's like a gender thing. I mean, probably like mm. women would call you dear, or especially yes. older women. Uh, you know? well, like, have I have I been Sugar. able to reach out and be there for people? But young. A little spray down there. It's okay. You Getting just wild. Spilled beer on her rug. Uh, I started talking okay. about my ex. Now I'm like spilling beers everywhere. Okay. <laughs> oh dear. Tell us. Tell us more. Oh dear. What's, what's bothering you? <laughs> so dear. Um, yeah. You were also going to tell us about ragas when I interrupted you. Sorry to talk about being high while playing. Yeah. So I mean, that's my best story about ragas. Is like. You got to be present for it yeah. to learn it, you know? And then you got to feel it. Like like the story, when I was on Mushrooms, it was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to perform a raga, but it, I'm going to be able to like give my best, which means like reel it in and find like the spirit of the raga. Even if it's only two notes, like a two note raga sounds absurd and kind of stupid. But th- I think that th- I did a better job doing that than if I would have played the actual notes of a raga. Okay, well, first of know? all, I don't even know what a raga is. So well, a raga we... is just the format of, okay. of classical Indian music, so it's kind of like a song. Is it different than a scale? Yeah, it is. I mean, it, ha- it might have more than one scale in it. Like, there's an ascending and descending scale in a raga that is sometimes different. Oh, okay. You know? And then there's, Can you uh, get your, your sitar and show us? Yeah. Yeah, picture's worth yeah. a thousand words, right? All right, let's 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 do that. An audible picture. You know, there's a certain something that comes from like seeing right into a person's soul or into the soul of the raga and you like feel it. And you're starting to come up and you're like, okay, I got some demons to deal with first. You know, it's like, can, you can't just tell the demons to hang on a second. You know, they're there. Don't ask your family to read your book. So you're saying Elvis shouldn't have taken a shit. He should have went on stage. Maybe he wouldn't have died. And I remember he called me deer, you know, and I'm like, 
I've never heard a man call me deer before. They, let's talk about this deer. What's going on with you? You can't just tell the demons to hang on a second. You know, they're there. And you're starting to come up. You're like, okay, I got some demons to deal with first. You know? It's like, okay, I just played for the richest guy in the world, and he gave me props, so now I'm fearless. Yeah, they say they have a, a slogan, we don't make sense, but we love pizza. I do a lot of memes. I'm also a meme lord, right? So pure propaganda. Yeah, if you, if you follow uh, I Made Another Meme For You To Look At, that's all my original content on there. I Made Another Meme For You To Look At. Pure propaganda. There you go, tie yourself to the ceiling. Say a tried and true method. Can you, you can't just tell the demons to hang on a second. You know, they're there. The Allah, there's these like totally like super like Shanti musicians, you know, and they're just sitting around like smoking weed and playing cards and like, hanging out. Right? Everything is filtered through pure propaganda. Like, not your grandpa's King Cobra, you know? It's like pure propaganda. So then I was like, now double, you know, they would literally treat me like a fucking god. But it really comes about just, just doing it. Just tell it to shut the fuck up and write. Shut the fuck up and write. The story knows what it needs. How, how long is it sustainable just to have like pure capitalism or whatever? You know, it's like at some point you have to rein it in and say what's, what's sustainable. Yes, you could create a robot that could create a facsimile of urine. The story knows what it needs. But they didn't con me. But, but that's not art, that's just commercial bullshit, you know. So. They didn't con me. I'm actually parodying Purple Prose, like that's the point. Seinfeld's not the greatest, you know, comedian. You think you're vegetarian. Me deer, you know, and like I've never heard a man call me deer before. Like, let's talk about this deer. Like, what's going on with you? Do you know how to read? Let's talk about this deer. Like, what's going on with you? 
So Bear V it contains the scales, but uh, but no Bear. I mean, a raga is like raga means like to color. So it's sort of like a like a, a feeling, you know, like it's like you're you're coloring like an emotion or something like that. And um, they have like the uh, they call them the rasas, which are like the uh, there's nine of the uh, classical sentiments that are like um, like um, like passion, anger. Uh, sorrow, like uh, sort of like how we have like in the West, like in theater, you know, you're like, like the basic, like, uh, like emotions. And so each raga has like a, a, a primary uh, rasa, like whatever that emotion might be for that raga. Uh-huh. Um, Interesting. And then there's um, core melodies. So, you know, like little licks and stuff that are part of that raga. Um, there's certain like sometimes rules of like how you ascend whenever you're going ascending in the melody. Like sometimes you have to... Um, in some ragas, you have to, like, when you get to the three, you have to go back to the two before you go up to the four. So there's there's rules for each raga, you know? Cool. I don't know how to define what a raga is. It's all those things, you know, but it's a, it's kind of like a, a format because it's also um, the classical Indian performer will utilize that framework and that skeleton and within all those rules there's also room for improvisation you know right but it has to be like within that that framework so um, so um do you compose your own um songs yeah songs. <laughs> i certainly don't put, compose my own ragas but um yeah, yeah i do yeah. i oh, most of what i play on sitar is isn't somehow informed by my understanding of raga so okay um like if I was in the West, I would think of that as a Phrygian minor scale, mm-hmm. but I don't, my brain doesn't work that way. Even though I know that, like if I'm playing with another musician, yeah, and they say what are, what scale, I would say that's the Phrygian minor. But to me, it's Bervi, you know, right? And that is a raga. raga. Yeah. So a raga is similar to a scale, more like a mode. It sounds. Like. It, it well, but that's, that's only an aspect. Like I said, there's um, there's yeah. core melodies, um, like. Um, so there, there's this is one. It's like very simple, like four note melody. Mm-hmm. Like if I play that, like for an Indian person, they, they would know that that's Barry V. Just oh, that. Barry V. Okay. So yeah, I mean, and what is that associated with? Like, what is the mood? Well, Barry is the, it's the it's mother. The mother of all it's the mother of all ragas. Yeah. Of all, so that's yeah. the okay. Oh, I see. And then the, the sort of father raga is like what we would consider like the major scale. Okay. You know? um, I don't have my these frets are movable, so I don't have them all set up. It's like it's such a cool sounding instrument. Will you play us a song that you wrote, or do do you sing as well? Play do you us? do that whole like. Um, I do not usually at the same time. Yeah. Um, I do play with an ensemble. Do you have a tabla player and somebody to play the um, harmonium? I, well, my, so my band Titanium Buddha is like I am the core. Like I'm a one piece band, but I I play with all kinds of different instruments. Uh-huh. Um, like I get to just hand select what I can, like depending on what what the uh, event is appropriate for, you know, some just like a drummer and a bass player. Um, 
I have a friend that plays cello locally that we, we sometimes do like a two or three piece. Um, just a little bit of everything. I've also played like with like punk rock and like metal, you know. Oh man, that sounds good. Yeah, like uh, the band Done. Um, band is Done. They're uh, kind of a, like thrash, skate punk, like whatever. Like they're actually anti genre, but that's another <laughs> story. Uh, what like are with them? And, yeah, well, if you want to play with Nervous Sending, we could probably use a sitar player. Well, I would love, to, I would really love you. I saw one of your guys' recordings at uh, at the Muse, and I was like, I wish I was there. It was like when you, it was just like you two and the drummer. Oh yeah. And he, you were like really in the pocket that night, and I was like, yeah. oh, and I couldn't make it for whatever reason, and I was like, I could just hear my parts in that song. You know? Oh I nice. Like, Fuck. I missed it, you know. Yeah. So we usually play a song after the podcast, but I think um. You should be the, you should play the song, the music that, and that was which, um. That's based off of a Raga Baraby. Which yeah, is the, the, the mother. The mother, the mother of all ragas, yeah. Nice. All like, you know, like when you think of like, like a Middle Eastern song and it like, there's like all those like flat notes, it just sounds Middle Eastern, you know? Yeah. Like, I play, I play stuff on the guitar that's reminds me of that kind of somehow, like you can just like own and he gets to have that one. Like the Arabic scale would have like a natural three, in my opinion. Mm. So Arabic scales actually have a new, like, like it's a kind of common misconception. People think that, um, that Raga has like different notes than we do, but it's actually recognize the same 12 notes. Oh, do they? Yeah. There's just spaces in between and then you can utilize it, but, um, but yeah, it's like, uh, they recognize the I've heard something about microtonalities in between notes and stuff. Yeah. Is that the bending in things? Yeah, like they they call mean. Like uh mean is like um is like sort of the art of bending, like in raga and stuff. Like uh there's uh I, w- I wish I was better at it. I would need to put hours and hours of more practice in, but um Well we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna tie your hair up and hang you to the ceiling. That was that's what I need. <laughs> I need that. Um do some serious dream oh. work. I got some. I got a song. I would. I would like to collaborate with you. It's called Shakti Lotus. I don't know if you've heard this song of mine. It's about a, a legendary ganja grower who wins the ganja games, and his name is Shakti Lotus. There's this Indian part in it. It'd be really fun if you could, if oh, you could throw down on that. I'd be totally into that'd it. That'd be that'd be super sweet. Cool. Um, anything else you want to share with our listening audience? Uh, I just apologize. Like my my uh, my sitar is just a little out of tune. Apology not accepted. And, uh, <laughs> and I feel like I would just uh, it would be like a um, opening a can of worms to try to get it tuned to my to my liking right now. Yeah. So, well, you know, this just invites a follow up. So yeah, we'll yeah. we'll make sure that that's all happening. Um. So, but so your your book is available. Where's the best place to buy your book? Uh, at the bar. <laughs> at the bar, but what if people um, aren't did, local? Did, um, I saw something in the forward. Um, they can get some information. Is that still valid? Robot Vox at Yahoo. Robot Vox. That's what it was. Yeah. And there's also a Meme Lord site, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I made another meme for you to look at on Facebook. Okay, that would be a good place for people to so, go. So, yeah, but then, um, I don't know, then you sell these shirts that you, I don't know. I'm. You know, this is like promote. Promotional yeah, I mean, opportunity I wear, for you. I wear a so. lot of hats. I, I, um, about a year ago, I was start, sort of burning out on my day job, even though I had a pretty good day job. You know, I was working both front and back of the house at the Crazy Horse and uh, 
seeing a lot of good music come through there and I was enjoying it, but just got tired of working for someone else. And I wanted to go back to, you know, finishing my next book, focusing on my creative pursuits and all of that. So right now I'm just really trying to juggle all of these like creative talents that I have mm-hmm. and to try to make them somehow financially feasible. So yeah, I make, I got the dirt shirts company, Sierra Nevada dirt shirts. Um, I make custom tie dyes and I make um, natural dyes and, um, do you do screen printing? I don't do screen printing, but I have a, a, a local girls at Cosmic Shark Clothing um, that I would uh, refer to. And if anyone wants to like, do a collaboration where I'm doing the dyeing and they do, would do the silk screen. Um, they're an awesome uh, uh, pair of girls that started their own company, Cosmic Shark Clothing. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I've got dirt shirts. Um, I've got um, my, I've tried to um, figure out a way to monetize the meme game by like printing my memes on shirts and selling those. Um, I've had like memes go viral to where I had like like millions of like reacts, you know, like thousands and thousands of shares. Wow. And I was like, dude, how can I like? Are you getting in on that meme though? Yeah, that meme I was, like, cheese. I'm like trying to like, you know, I was like I was like putting it on like my main meme page, like like a sticky post to like, oh, buy my shirts and like, you know, there's like like millions of people sharing my memes, but no one's like, oh, let me buy that. Like you know, people don't go spend money on memes, right. you know. So like, but I tried to, you know, I have sold a few shirts, stickers. Like, do you do stickers? Like, when I wear, like, I've printed up some of my shirts and then, like, wear them around town. And people are like, oh, that's a cool shirt. I'm like, thanks, I made it. It's my meme. And then I've sell them word of mouth like that. I'm not stealing your memes. I'm sharing our memes, you know? Um, yeah, and then, uh, and then I, you know, I've got my book for sale. Um, I play music of, of, of various types. Yeah. Um, I'm trying my hand at stand-up comedy. Um, you know, whatever. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple side hustles, you know? I make a mean pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do poetry and write novels. Yeah. Those are two different kinds of. Honestly, I was, I was surprised how well the the novel went as well as actually being marketable. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like I could, if, if I had more knowledge about marketing and stuff that I could probably, you know, make some money selling the book. And I just don't, that's not something I've dove into yet. Mm -hmm. Um, it's certainly something that I kind of have on the back burner that I would like to at some point invest some time and money into mm-hmm. promoting my book, like through traditional channels to get a wider audience. Your book is, it would be called a novella, right? Probably. Yeah. Um, or is it a novel? I don't know. I mean, um, no, I think it's long enough to be considered a novel. Okay. Yeah. A short novel, but yeah, novellas are usually like, like about 60, 80 pages. Okay. Because Justin called it a novella. Yeah. I had a challenge of could I read this book in a day? <laughs> in, in a, a day, day. and you That's did. Great. I thought, yeah, I could do it. Yeah, I did it. But it's and it was it, it actually it is worked quite well. a book. I mean, it is yeah. quite a read because it's what a hundred? How many pages is it? One hundred and sixty. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. So I didn't it, realize it was that long, but it yeah, but it moves along quickly. It's kind of yeah. In a way, it's it's lighthearted, even though it has its darker moments. Yeah. Um, which I like that. You know, it's like. There's, you know, there's the whole cancel culture and all the kind of stuff that goes on. And like, you know, like there's like on, in, in certain like social media spheres, people say like, you have to, um, you need to have to, like, you have to have like trigger warnings or content warnings. Wait, what? You know, like, um, for all sorts of different things, like whether it be like, a you know, a poem or an article or something, if it's like, oh, some people are triggered by like violence or rape. Because there's rape this or in that. the like, book. You're supposed to have like a, you know, trigger warning at the top of the article to say, you know. And, and, and you it, don't have that. And I was like, you know, and on, on some level, I kind of wanted to throw a trigger warning, a 
attached to my novel because it like it starts out so lighthearted and then it might you know takes a couple left turns it might catch some people off guard if they're but I'm like you know art is supposed to like I forget who yeah, it said like, like comforts a- the disturbs and disturbs the comfortable and I believe that wholeheartedly mm-hmm. and um wh- the only the closest thing I've had to negative feedback from the novel was from a friend of mine who there was a certain scene in the book that that bothered him and uh and he just didn't he didn't understand the point of it what was and that I don't want to give it away about the oh yeah veg- because veggie chicken burgers but um but it was <laughs> it was a scene that was uncomfortable oh and I said but that's the point and the novel wouldn't work without that scene right it's a pivotal scene in my opinion in the book mm-hmm. and um you know, because I spent a lot more time editing than I did writing the first mm-hmm. draft. You know, as I mentioned, it was like 30 days and then 30 days. So 60 days total had mm-hmm. the rough draft finished. Yeah. And then I spent, you know, the better part of, or, you know, off and on for years. Yeah. Toning it down and removing things and adding things. And um, and parts that I knew might be considered problematic, I felt absolutely belonged there, you know. So, but it's just, it's just kind of a weird thing because I, I understand that it, it starts out like it's kind of like one guy who had started to read it and he'd read like through two or three chapters. He's like, so it was, it's just kind of like, like a Seinfeld kind of a vibe. <laughs> and like, I kind of took that as, as, as like a cut down because like, I think Seinfeld's not the greatest you yeah. know, comedian. It's, it's very just sort of middle of the road, safe mm-hmm. humor. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like I, of Thanks. all the comedians you could have compared me to, you said Seinfeld, like, Thanks. But I don't. Yeah. I think that the the humor is a little more mature than that, and I, and I think that it's um, it deals with topics that uh, I mean I mean it's in some ways it's it's sort of a, a satire mm-hmm. of a, of a lot of different things like going on in our modern society mm-hmm. um, that you might not catch on the first reading, you know. Mm-hmm. It, so yeah, yeah. Nice. I think I love how it's centered around the scent of the sense of smell. I know. I felt that was especially poignant. I could given almost, the COVID bit. Mm-hmm. I could almost smell the smells you were describing. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh my God, what? this reminds me of that car trip I took across the country where two, <laughs> with two cats. Yeah, and the, the cats in no, there, my, yeah. so I, yeah, I, I took, I had a vegan housemate or anyways, I, long story, but I'm sorry. he, he, well, he insisted on bringing his two cats. They were his friends, you know. Um, cats hate cars. I know, I know. That's the thing. Like, so we had two cats and in these cages, <laughs> and they're, they're they're little, you know, they're like carriers yeah. in the back oh, seat of the car, and we drove all the fucking way across the country. The humane way. To and do let that me is tell you, the cat the, to sleep. By the end of that car ride, that all I could smell was just mm-hmm. the odor of cat. Cat fear. Well, yeah. cat fe- cats and 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 the, the smell. <laughs> well, also cat shit, because mm-hmm. of course you know. I mean, they have their little litter boxes in there. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God. But like every time I rolled down the window, you'd be like, they'd be like, meow, meow, meow. Yeah. I'm like, geez, I can't roll down the window, you know? Like, but yeah, that's just, interesting. I was like, I don't fucking care. I'm just rolling down the window. I, I, you know, I was trying to kind of capture that a little bit that, you know, in the process of maybe transforming into a cat, it's like, yeah. we don't, as humans, we don't really put that much stock in our, the sense of smell. It doesn't really rule our day to day lifestyles. For a cat, it is like a cat can smell emotions. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And we can smell a cat's emotions is, uh, in your example. It's like this cat was not yeah. digging it and you could smell it, you know? And it's like, yeah. that's, that's, that's part of a cat's world. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm one glad of, I was able to capture that a little bit, you know? It was interesting because the one that was, so one of the cats was like feral or f- formerly feral and like then became re domesticated, sort of. Mm-hmm. 
And that was the one that he, he was really freaked out. Yeah. But then the younger kitten was like totally like able to like adjust and adapt and was like even out of the cage and like like just was pretty chill mm-hmm. after a while, you know. Well, that's another fascinating thing about cats is like, and one of the things why I chose a cat as opposed to a cockroach or a dog or whatever. Um, well, also there's no such thing as like were cats, right? We've got were wolves, we, you know. No one's ever really explored like the the human cat chimera idea to my knowledge, you know? And so I thought that it was interesting, but also because cats, they're one of the oldest domesticated animals, but they're also, they have this very wild yeah. instinct. In Egypt, they would mummify their cats. Yeah. They were, they were very revered. Holy. Yeah. And, and it, and I think maybe that's part of partly why is because they're, they represent both um, civilized mm-hmm. domesticated nature and the wild spirit. Right. That keeps life interesting, you know. Yeah, the pharaohs would have cats, and and they well they had cats um, in the granaries, right? Because they would obviously catch them. Catch them yeah. Oh man, that part about peanut butter <laughs> is that for real? Maggots in the peanut butter? That is Ew. a true story. Oh, I read that. That is a true story. You oh. well, from when I worked at a. Uh, I Wikipedia that. I was like, wait, is this for real? What's going on here? So Do that's you know like, that flavor that I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about, yeah. Like, okay, wait, stale, what? Like, yeah. Every once in a while you get it. Like yeah. this, this distinctive. Uh-huh, Ew. You know? And that, you, you what, what's the real story? What's the I back was, story? I was working at a, uh, at a co-op and uh, my buddy, he works at the, um, in the bulk department. Yeah. And one day he's all, hey, dude, come here, check this out. And he like opened up the, um, he opened up the, the peanut butter grinder. Yeah. You know, you can like grind your own peanuts at yeah. the co-op. And he opened it up, like the inside, he's like, look. Because, you know, he was like, had to clean it or whatever. And there was like maggots, like crawling all inside of the machine. Oh, like, no. like, like a pile of maggots. He's like, I was like, whoa. He's like, yeah. He's like, I wonder how many people have bought peanut butter today. <laughs> and we were like, whoa. And he's like, he's like, taste it. And I was like, are you fucking crazy? He's like, no, dude. He's like, he's like I tried to, to taste it. So I tasted a little bit, the, the, the part that was already ground. And I like, and I was like, oh my God, it's that, it's that taste. That's maggot. You know, and I, cause I remember like being a little kid and sometimes you'd get a peanut butter sandwich. It would have that kind of weird little slightly funk to it. Oh no. Those fucking maggots. What is That's the protein. taste exactly though? Can you describe it? I, I mean, no. You, you think I, it's I, rancid. It's not quite rancid. Not. It doesn't taste totally gross. It's Ugh. just like off it's a, a little, little bit. It's like rancid. It's like tastes kind of stale. Oh God. And like kind of, yeah, just a little off. I probably not like totally sour or like it's not over the top. Oh God, I wonder. But you know when you taste it that it's not right, you know. Oh, I. And I always just figured it was just like old peanut butter or you know what I mean. No. What what happens in the warehouse? You know. I probably eat maggots. Oh yeah. You think you're vegetarian, but you're not vegetarian. Yeah, you could have 132 insect parts per hundred grams of peanut butter. I'm never eating peanut butter again. Damn, so see, the truth comes out. Like, oh, no, no, no. It's totally non-autobiographical. And now you're like <laughs> pulling this shit out. Okay, yeah, uh, maybe half of, the, of it's true. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> um, fun facts are fun facts. What can you do? So. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Because yeah, I don't know how I would make up something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. Very vivid. Very vivid and like sensual in that way of like I'm, really tapping the, the mm-hmm. smell sense. That I up. forgot that that was even in the book. <laughs> I'm trying to write a novel. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you know what it's about? No. No. I mean, sort of. I like. You should do National Novel Writing Month. 
I know I should. Read the guy's book, Chris okay. Batty, No Plot, No Problem. Okay. It's really, it's a good read. It's, you could read it in a day. It's like a hundred pages long. Yeah. And he basically just says like, shut your internal editor up and write. Just like vomit onto the page. And you can always go back and edit, but just get it, get it out there. It's kind of like the concept of the morning pages, you know, the artist's way. Mm. You read that? Okay, well, so it's different, but the artist's way, like the artist's way has that idea of like, you just, just stream, just do it. it. Yeah. Just stream of consciousness, you know, just Mm -hmm. put it on the page. Even if it's writing like, I have no fucking idea what I'm going to write right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Just like and and so it gets you in the it gets you in the habit of writing. Well, and some of those and things it, that you think are just throwaway ideas end up developing into like some really interesting ideas, right? That you would have never stumbled upon, right? You know. Yeah, so I I was doing that for a while. The I've sort of fallen off that morning pages track, but I I filled up a fairly big notebook, a couple of notebooks with morning pages and. I feel like I started a number of novels, you know, mm-hmm. like the the beginning, an idea, and they trail off. And I'm like, where the hell is this going? Like, right. that's the hard part for me is just like you start something. It's easy to start, right? Mm-hmm. You start it mm-hmm. and it's like, oh, okay, well, there's a start. But then actually following it through. Well, I think that's where, again, turning off the internal editor comes yeah. in. Because you just just keep writing. Don't worry about that you don't know where it's going. Yeah. it'll The story will figure out where it's going. It's like, you know, it's like yeah. the story knows what it needs. Okay. And like, if you can trust your intuition enough to let that happen, then like, that's where magic happens, you know? Maybe, or or maybe then I'm just like, I just keep writing, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm trying to write a fucking novel, but this isn't going anywhere, so this sucks, and I suck, and like, fuck this. That's your internal editor talking. <laughs> like, well, that's true. That's what you have yeah. to turn off. Oh, okay, I see. And now, if you if you read his book, he has like little little tricks to shut your internal editor up. Oh, you know, but it really comes about just just doing it, just. Tell it to shut the fuck up and write. Do you have a copy of that? I don't own it. I, I bought right, it at the library. I'll have to check it out. What is, what is it called again? No Plot, No Problem by no Chris plot, Batty. No okay, I'll check it out. Or Beatty. When's your, uh, when's your next book coming out? Shit, I don't know. I've been saying I'm halfway done for the past six months. And I've written more, but it's still just sort of, I'm stuck in halfway for you a You ever work with an editor? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had... Three separate editors on the Cat in the Rye. Oh, neat. none of them were paid. No, but still um, somebody to go over and, it and to like. And um, Olia still found a couple typos in it. You know, after it got past three other people and myself, there were still like a couple little things that we missed. So um, there's something to be said for hiring a professional. Uh, you know, somebody can like that's editing for things like that. Um, when it comes to um, editing for content and 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 style and things like that. I, I only trust myself, you know, cause someone might say, Oh, well, you know, I, you know, maybe this, you're being too vor- verbose in this area. I'm like, yeah, no, that, that's, I'm actually parodying purple prose. Like that's the point, you know, and not everyone can get what, I, why I write the way that I write. And I, and I trust my instincts when it comes to that stuff, but I do miss typos. So, um, having a good editor that can just catch the little mistakes that, and, you know, it's like, especially when you're looking at a screen, it's just, it's really hard to catch every little thing. Um, it wasn't until that I got it, a printed copy in front of me that I'm like, oh, here's these obvious typos, you know? I heard a trick was to read it backwards. Oh. So you're not really reading sentences, you're just looking at words. Yeah, yeah you're looking at words, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. That yeah, I find, it, a good way to do I find it. it much more, I can't write, type 
on it. I have to handwrite my stuff. Oh yeah. I cannot type. I mean, I can type, uh-huh. but I much prefer to handwrite and, and that's the way I do it. And then I type it up later. I'm a little of each. Like Even, I, when I, I feel like when I'm really exploring, like when I know, like I'm working on a chapter that I know is really important in my book or something mm-hmm. like that. And I've, I've thought about it a lot. And, um, then I'll sit down in a cafe or something and I'll, and I'll write that chapter mm-hmm. out or at least get like the main part of it down, like a rough mm-hmm. draft. But when I'm writing more improv, I like to type because I, my hand can't write that fast. When yeah. ideas are coming, like right. I, can, I can type about like 40, 50 words per minute. Right. There's no way I can write that quickly, you know? Well, that's true, I guess. So, um, so, you so can when type you're just a lot trying faster. to catalog your thoughts and then yeah. typing is, is handy. Okay. You know? Um, so I go then, both. It just depends again, on the mood I'm in. And what about with your comedy? Do you do um, do you write that out as well? I just take notes. Like when I think of a joke, hopefully. Do you ever work with a recorder? No, no, because my jokes are usually pretty short. And if it's a longer bit, it's something that I know. You know, I just need to write a note to remind myself of what that bit is, and then start. Yeah, yeah. Um, like my notes of like my set. I, I got like a 20 minute set, and it's like 20 words on the paper. You know that. Just, have you ever, there's that voice recognition? Yeah, I use that, that. I use that all the time. Like when they I have. keep taking quick notes rather right. than try to type it out. Like if I'm in a hurry or I'm driving or something, yeah. just that little microphone thing and say, hey, this is an idea, blah, blah, blah. And then it just translates it into type. Oh, does it always get it right? For the most part. Enough for me to figure it out later. Oh, okay. You know? See, that'll, that, that interests me because it would actually be a nice way to. Give me a smartphone, dude. Well, it would be yeah. kind of and an I, interesting. I, mean, I should be more organized because I just all like text myself ideas. So then they sometimes they get lost in the shuffle of my texts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have like a note program that I use consistently where I could have it all organized and dated and stuff. It's just I'll just text myself or email myself an idea, and then but then I have to remember that it's there or it just gets buried. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. No, I want to. I want to use that voice recording or try it out. That voice you don't have recording. a smartphone though. I don't, I've never had a cell phone in my life. Oh, really? In my it's life. It's certainly helpful for stuff like that. I know, it or is. just having an idea on the fly. And, Probably. But, you know, a little notepad in your pocket works just as well. Yeah. Unless you're driving or something, you know. Yeah, I don't. And I'm not advocating texting and driving. I know. <laughs> kids. No. Um, I think, though, that, like, well, especially, I was thinking about that for my mom. So she had a stroke and, you know, the voice recognition device would be helpful for her mm-hmm. was typing is kind of hard. So the technology has gotten pretty good. Like if you yeah. can like enunciate clearly, like it knows what you're saying. And it okay. trains on your voice too. So, uh-huh. but yeah. I mean, AI has gotten stupid smart lately. Like there's, there's oh, like AI philosophers, you know, that oh my like God. are practically. I know I'm a, I'm a little scared of that stuff. Like what the hell you should be. Yeah. I know. Like you don't actually exist. You know that, right? Oh God. Well, I just worry about them, like, taking all the creative jobs, you know? Like, there's that new thing that's popular right now that, um, what's it called, Doll-E? Oh, yeah. The, you know? the, the, it's, the, it generates images generates based images off of, like, text, text prompts. Yeah. And it's quite sophisticated, you know? The, the one they have that rolled out for, like, Doll-E 1, that you can use Doll-E Mini, but Doll-E 2, that's only, it's only in beta testing and only select few people have it. But it's scary good. Like, it, it's it's so intelligent. I've seen that stuff. It's and it's crazy. like, it's mind-blowing what it can do. Because I'm like, it will render, like, graphic artists useless in five years, you know? Uh, how, how does that affect in your meme game? Well, I've gotten some good memes out of it. <laughs> you know? Like, I did the, um, a study. I just typed into uh, to the wall uh, or the 
Dolly Mini, I typed in, uh, like, based off of that quote that, um, I don't know if it's, tr- it's kind of true. They say that um, the U.S. has never invaded a country that has a McDonald's. And so I, I, I like, fact-checked that. And there's, it's mostly true of the couple, like, very rare exceptions. We've never really invaded a country that has a McDonald's. So that, it just came to me to, like, juxtapose the idea of, like, war at McDonald's. And I typed that in and then got, came up with some really artistic, interesting images. So I did like a little like photo essay called War at McDonald's. But it was, I mean, the, the AI did half the work for me. I just came up with the idea and then it, you know. And, it, and then that made me think a lot like, well, how do we define art? Like a human created the algorithm and now it's doing creative things and it's interactive to me. So it is like a medium. It is art. But, kind it's, of a but tool. it's challenging the borders of what we consider art, you know. Well, is it more of a tool or an art? Well, you use tools to make art, you know. Yeah, so it's, yeah but yeah. the tool, the, the you know, the paintbrush isn't the picture, right? But so, but some people are like staunch, like old school, you know. The people like the Luddites will say, "Well, you can't make art with that," you know. Why not? That's some people's opinion. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I do worry that the, the, the functions like that can take away jobs from hardworking like graphic designers who have an art that's also a commercial skill or make their yeah. job easier well, if they know how to hopefully, yeah. use the tool that's right could an ai cuz could... i mean i think about i think about it like okay like a word processor versus a secretary mhm you know yeah but what if what if um what if i could um program an ai to write a movie script for me oh you can you don't even yeah. have to program them they just do and that and especially if it, i'm just trying to come up with the next blockbuster the AI could probably do better than a screenwriter because a can screenwriter read has artistic integrity. He would like want it to be good, and the AI doesn't care. He's like, no, we just need explosions and just take this actor and this actor and the, you know this simple. Plot. I want to see that movie now. Yeah. Oh, you probably already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Top Gun, what's Maverick? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, that's sort of what what it, what Hollywood blockbusters have devolved into. It's like um, there was actually a movie about that, uh, the player. And it's a it's a pretty good movie where uh, they talk about that in the movie about like how screenwriters are kind of like a necessary evil of the industry. It's like, well, we kind of need screenwriters to write the screens, but can't we just not? You know, like we really just want like Tom Cruise and you know this person, and you know it's like a you know it's a Top Gun meets a scary movie, and with the da da da, and and you just throw together these simple ideas, and then the story writes itself. You know, um, that sounds good. But, but that's not art. That's just commercial bullshit, you know? Like, so. Now, but like I said, I saw some depictions when I was messing around with that McDonald's idea. There was some very interesting imagery in there. Like, I was a little jealous of the computer, you know? Like, Yeah, it can so, just do things that aren't even real. It'll be interesting to see how, how that progresses, you know? All right, well... We've been at it for a while. How are you yeah. feeling? Good. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank and you for the amazing food. Yeah, we hope this yeah. is just the first of a series. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to yeah. say something. I was, but I got interrupted a lot. What you got? Oh, just we were talking about what is art, and, mm-hmm. uh, and that goes back to like a previous podcast, our first podcast, when we were talking about... Um, so I went to art college, and... Uh, the we there was this scholarship show and I decided that I had this wacky idea. I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna 
pee in a condom, tie a knot in it and go bring it to the art college and nail it to the wall. And that is my exhibit is this piss in a condom, piss condom. Hear that AI? And mm. it, oh no, yeah, I, was like thinking, AI I, was, piss. I was thinking about it. It was like, okay, well, yeah, an AI could not piss. I mean, they right. can't, they don't pee. So they couldn't yet. do that. Yet. Yet. They may be able to Because they do have stem cells and things, you know. Yeah, you think right. eventually they'll be able to urinate? Well, you can make urea. Urinate. Yeah, yeah. Give it urinate. some protein. Yes, you could create a urinate. robot that could create a facsimile Artificial of pee. urine. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that's weird. Okay. Artificial I don't know why you would want to. but <laughs> I don't know why you'd want to. Why wouldn't you? But, well, you know, some people are into that kind of thing. But do you I remember think- that quote from Jurassic Park? <laughs> You so preoccupied that if you can, you didn't stop to think if you should. <laughs> you ever see that? You ever see that website? One Jeff Goldblum meme per day. No. Like the same Jeff Goldblum meme every day. Um, I'm on board. <laughs> anyways, I. It is what it is. Um, no, I was just thinking about the well, art. I, what I is like the art? idea. I like art. that AI is challenging me to redefine what art is that's the upside to me it's so like making how would you me, define art now well i don't i haven't changed my definition but i've but it, it's what made me it? examine how to define it you what know what is what is art it's not something that you can like quantize which is what makes it special and that's why an ai can't become an artist yeah because an ai is only an algorithm mm-hmm. right it can only do what it's programmed to do or what it programs itself to do. So like, for example, you take a young child, In a right? sense, we are. Okay, but you take a young child, right? A young toddler, mm-hmm. right? And they're just scribbling on a page. Okay, maybe, I'm assuming. Like, how is that? So they create something, you know, they're just learning how to, right? How is that different from then you have this... An AI that could do the same thing? Well, yeah, or... Or then, you know, the person becomes a little more developed and they're, they have emotional development and they're, mm-hmm. they're using this to express. Right. You know, it's like, whereas before they might be just like, oh, well, what is my hand doing? I'm just like learning how to use my hand. They're discovering it. I'm yes. learning how to use this mm-hmm. hand and this like, I don't even know well, what this is. Those are all things that, that, a, that a computer can't do. You know, I'm like just saying like- a computer can't be amazed that it's doing it. Yeah. It just does it, right? It's un- unless I don't know. We managed to make um AI actually self-aware. Have you yeah. heard the new Google the the new Google AI controversy? What about it? Somebody that Google was fired for reveal or he quit because he was having this conversation with their new AI. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he found out the thing was sentient. Right. According to he the claims, thing. Yeah. Well, the, the thing claimed, 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 claimed. That's yeah. marketing. That's a marketing thing. It sounded But I mean, funny. you know, I don't know. And then this is interesting because it it to me it brings in the whole quantum quantum physics. It becomes it gets into the realm of quantum physics and mm-hmm. what is consciousness. Right. And like Well it's like you how, uh, he asked a great question is like, well, aren't we just algorithms too, like the way that we function? Yeah. And in a sense we are, but th- but there's also there's more to it than that because we can't define what the algorithm is. We get itchy. We just, we don't know what the algorithm is. Like, it, there might be one. We don't know that, though. Like, there, you know. Oh, there's definitely. Like, where, where does the inspiration come from? Like, what makes us dream, you know? Like, where, when, you know, we don't know. Those are answers that we haven't answered. So, 
Yeah. Those are answers we haven't answered. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Some someday we might we might say, oh, uh, we cracked the code. This is why the brain does what it does, and this is why you right. know. Yeah, but you're yeah. always gonna have so what. Well, and so and free next? will and free will. Like it's hard to give a machine free will. And you like, have yes and. Some people would argue that we don't even have free will, but I don't know that I believe that. Well, I mean, there's there's pre, there's I mean, predetermined things like we're yeah. you know we're certainly confined by certain things and there's certain right. certainly zombie actions that we all engage in in our own selves, right? And just the automatic, loop, 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 loop. Yeah. but we, we but we kind of voluntarily set ourselves up for that too by our habitual patterns and things that we do. You know, like no one's like forcing me to be lazy. You yeah. Know, like, mm. <laughs> Thank God for hunger, huh? <laughs> I think art is an expression. It, it's expression of emotion, internal process, what's happening, like, and you're expressing that. Yeah. That's and why so I'm confident that AI what, can't do art because that's what makes it different, maybe. Yes. I don't know. Because I, you're I expressing agree with that. something yeah. that's going on in here. Because, at least as it is now, an AI can only mimic those things. Like an AI can act sentient, you know, it can sort of pretend to be self-aware. It can, you can feed it a bunch of knowledge and it can regurgitate that knowledge. And, Reminds me of a girl I know. You know, it's sort of like in, in like an English class. Like I always did really good in English because I could bullshit, you know. Mm -hmm. So it's like you just give me a bunch of information and I can like mix it around a little bit, regurgitate it back to you. I didn't necessarily learn anything, but I can eloquently make it sound like I did something unique. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what AI does, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's not real creation. That's just, you know. And then there's that's also just but like, like high school English, man. You know. <laughs> Then there's That's also where like, AI is right now. It's like a ninth grade English student. You but know there's what, also like it's way. way different nice kinds of, of psychedelics. Different kinds of art. I mean, there's like can art can AIs get high? There's different kinds of art. There's photography, right? Where you're just taking your your you know some people would say, oh well, that's not really. It's different different levels of expression, right? You're just hitting a button, right? And it is capturing what you're you're seeing. Now, of course, but there's you chose an art. How to frame it. Right, you chose the frame. I mean, hopefully, right. if you're if you're, you know, being a, that a good photographer, yeah. right? You're actually looking and seeing, and looking for the right shot, and then you take that. Okay, this is what I want, and I'm going to zoom in here. And well, and AI but, can do that algorithmically, like, like right. this this new program with the yeah. with the like images. It it, it knows what humans intuitively consider to be like a good composition. Right. And it can like reproduce that based off of like what we mm -hmm. like. Interesting. But it doesn't know why, you know, like it just, I mean, or it does know why it's, it, to it, it's all about the why. Like, okay, if they're, you know, these are the elements that make a good composition. What's well, so fascinating because then you ask the question like what, okay, what is consciousness and is, is AI capable of consciousness? Because I think that's the more interesting question. Yeah. And is consciousness necessary, probably, to create art, right? Exactly. I mean, so do you have, like, could a cat create art? Could, could a, could yeah, a... Elephants that do art, have you seen that? Could, I haven't, elephants weep when they're uh, dead, uh, when they die. Uh, I mean, when, when one of them dies, they have, like, whole elephant funerals. Yeah, they have, like, cemeteries and yeah. kind of, yeah, and, like... And they make good uh, sitar bridges. That's true. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. 
We encourage you to go check out all of Mike Seba's wonderful offerings. Get the book, Cat in the Rye. Get a dirt shirt. Get some tie-dye. Check out the memes. We got links in the description. Look for him on the social medias. If you want to support the podcast, go to nerveascending.com slash support. Enjoy the ride out. Thank you very much, Mr. Mike Siebel. We are listening to Mostly at Night. Mostly. An original track by Siebel. <laughs> 